Sue Knott, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on. Can you please give us a brief introduction? Uh, okay. Thank you, and thank you for having me on. This is going to be lots of fun, I think. Yes. Um, a brief inter- introduction. Well, I am 58 years old. I have uh, two beautiful grown children. I was born and raised in Vancouver, actually. Mm-hmm. I, I was not born in Chilliwack, uh, but uh, my grandparents lived out here, and my Uncle Jack Dowding was a teacher at CCS uh, back in the day. And uh, somehow, uh, when I was at the point where I was divorcing and I needed to find a place to live, uh, I decided that I would come to Chilliwack because I knew Chilliwack really well. And I had done a lot of uh, visiting of my grandparents here. Uh, they lived on Davis in Sardis Park. And I, when they got to be in their 80s, I would come and help them and cook and, you know, clean their house a little bit after work. So uh, that's kind of how I ended up in Chilliwack is, uh, is just out of uh, knowing the area and thinking how beautiful it was. And if I was going to be on my own, what a better place to raise kids. So that's how I ended up here. Okay. Uh, I uh, I was a horrible student when I was growing up. Hated school. I think, uh, you know, it became really apparent to my parents even when I was in kindergarten uh, because, you know, any excuse not to go to school, I had all these problems, you know, oh, I'm not feeling well or whatever. And, uh, you know, my trajectory back in the day was not, you know, bright because I just really and truly... Uh, hated having to go to school. And at one point, I convinced the teacher and my parents and the specialist and the school nurse that I was totally deaf in both ears. And uh, they were, you know, making plans for me. And it was great because I got to stay home for a while and trying to figure it out. And then uh, at one point, um, with my back face to them, uh, they offered me a creamsicle. And I turned around and said, oh, yes. <laughs> oh, no. So I was a very precocious and manipulative kind of child um, and uh, really just wanted to stay at home and do art projects and things with my mom. And and uh, so that's how I started off. I went, I lived at 25, 25th and Arbutus in Vancouver, and I went to elementary school at Trafalgar and went to Prince of Wales High School. I was kind of a kind of an outcast kind of a kid, I have to say. I, you know, from a very young age, I started to get, you know, heavier and heavier and heavier. And when I was in high school, I was incredibly bullied. Like, and I think that's one of the reasons that I have chosen to try and protect people and go into areas where I could support people that are vulnerable, right? So, uh, you know, every day on the way home from school, the boys, well, there wasn't just boys, it was boys and girls. They used to shove me into this prickle bush and, you know, I would go home and complain to my mom and say, oh, my, you know, I this is the worst. Like, they're just constantly bullying me, picking on me. Can't we do something about it? Or won't you go and talk to the parents or whatever? And my mom was very loving in many ways. But she really didn't like people who weren't perfectly stick skinny and appeared to have it all together. And, you know, she was a fabulous dresser. And she was just one of these people that was really concerned with appearances. So she would just say, no, you know, if you want to do something about it, lose weight. And yeah, it was bad. So, but in many other ways, she was very loving and and wonderful, but she just had this one little issue where appearances were basically everything. So um, went through school and I think my parents probably would have said the biggest 
accomplishment that I achieved at that point in my life was the fact that I actually graduated. But, but I graduated with, a, I think, a B-plus average because I took all my kind of core courses and things you absolutely had to take. I took general business math instead of, you know, the really hard math. And then I had nothing but art courses. And I got A's and A-pluses in art. So it really brought my average up. And I did uh, eventually graduate from high school in Vancouver. Uh, it was tough for my parents because my dad has a master's in physics and mathematics. Wow. He's a really, really smart guy and very um, dry, you know. And then my mother was this crazy kind of art teacher, very gregarious, outgoing. She loved to have parties. I mean, every weekend at our house, there was the bridge party or the this party or the that party. And uh, so, you know, it was kind of a, a, an odd balance between the two of them. But anyways, at that point, here I am. I have worked probably almost full time through high school. I worked in a, my first job was doing telephone surveys for cigarettes and um, chewing gum and all this kind of stuff. And it was above, I think the only reason I took the job is because it was ab above a Purdy's at Gramble and Broadway. <laughs> I just love Purdy's, right? So anyways, did that job for I think about a year and a half. And then I worked in a retirement home that was right across the street from our school. So I worked four, probably four or five nights a week and one day on the weekend. So I had already worked full time, probably, you know, all through school. Uh, because, you know, I didn't do a lot of homework, let's face it, right? It wasn't really my, my thing. So I always had lots of time for a job. And I wanted to take the summer off. And I had, we had talked about going to Emily Carr. And I had got a small bursary from a, an artist that came to the school. Her name was Evelyn Roth. And we, she was doing banners for Year of the Child. And my banner was selected for our art class, right? So then we had to make them and all this kind of stuff. And with it came this small bursary and kind of a recommendation for Emily Carr. So I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to Emily Carr. And I wanted to take the summer off. And my mom was just driving me nuts. You know, well, you've got to go. If you're not going to go to university, you've got to, <laughs> you've got to go find a job. And uh, because they didn't really think of Emily Carr as like a future thing, you know, that's all, all fun, fun and games, but it'll never pay your way. So anyways, I went and applied at BC Tell. Uh, my Uncle Jack was there. He gave me a recommendation and I just absolutely did not want that job. Like I, <laughs> I went in sweatpants and a sweatshirt. I don't think I had any makeup on. I maybe brushed my hair and went in there. I had like the worst attitude. And the person who interviewed me, um, you know, was very nice. And, you know, and I, I have trouble being a mean person. So I couldn't really get, like, I was still friendly, right? And I thought, oh, there's no way they're going to give me this job. Well, that was a Thursday. I got a call on Friday to say that I had been hired. And I was starting on the Monday. And I'm like, I was so choked. And I thought, how desperate are these people? <laughs> they would hire me with such a horrible, horrible attitude. So, you know, I told myself, okay, this is for the summer. That's it. I'm only doing this for the summer. And uh, I was, uh, you know, 18 and, you know, had my whole life ahead of me and all these other plans. And, you know, being a telephone operator is, is t <laughs> it's really tough work. I have to say our headsets were so short that you couldn't stand up. And the woman, I can't remember what her name was, but she was just a, battle axe. She was so mean. And she would come and smack the back of your chair if you weren't sitting up straight and stuff. 
And, uh, you know, it was back in the day where there wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, this is back in 1980. And there was No WorkSafe BC. <laughs> well, WorkSafe might have been there, but, you know, they were, these women had been around since the beginning of cord boards. I did do a bit of training on cord boards, but they had moved to this new system or whatever. But anyway, so I thought, I'll, you know, I'll never last. But, you know, uh, 25 years later. I was still working for the telephone company. It was at that point, it was uh, uh, BC. I worked for BC Telemobility. I was a senior manager reporting to the vice president and the president of the company. It was an emerging business and it was an amazing time to be in wireless. Like I had the first bag phone and, and, you know, my parents each had, I had phones installed in their cars and it was all this really you know and all their friends thought they were like the coolest because nobody really had anything like that and you know the the, the phones themselves were like four thousand dollars or something at that point back in the day oh my gosh and throughout my career there you know I had the first star tech the first flip phone the first this and then we got this thing that was like a, it was like a I can't remember what it was called but it had it was basically like a, the beginning of BlackBerry, but it was something else. And it had this big, chunky kind of modemy thing on the back of it. And it could, you know, send and receive messages. And, and there was some email and stuff like that. And, uh, and we just thought, this will never work. Like the wireless, the wireless world will never accept us, first of all. It's too expensive. It's not reliable enough. And um, but anyways, we were wrong. I think the guys who developed BlackBerry actually came and did a presentation in our boardroom. And all of us as senior managers, you know, they left the room and we said, these guys are going to go broke. There's no way this is going to work. And, you know, the wireless world is just not robust enough to support this. And anyway, over time, things got better. But, you know, this was back in about 2004, 2005. And I decided uh, that I would retire. And, um, and so, yeah, with 25, well, they were offering really great packages and I just absolutely couldn't, you know, I, at this point I was living in Chilliwack and commuting every day and I decided that I would go. So, you know, after 25 years of being a telephone person, you know, who am I now? In the meantime, I had, uh, just to go back a bit, I had the opportunity when I worked for the telephone company uh, when I left there, I think I had 12 weeks of holidays. And, you know, year after year, you get, you know, more and more holidays. Plus, I did a lot of overtime. Um, I did, I had two jobs always before I was married. I cooked lobsters for a catering company. I was a hand model for Burks, uh, print ads. Um, and I did things like, well, I worked in a pub. I worked at the Rosenthorn Pub for five years. So I would go out the back door of the telephone company and the pub was on the other side of the alley and in the back door of the pub and worked till closing in there. So I lived on my tips. I paid my rent uh, in an apartment on the water in the West End, right at the entrance to Stanley Park, which is amazing. Um, and I, you know, basically all the money that I made at the telephone company, I saved up for periods of time and all my overtime was time off because I didn't take the money for it. So every year I would take like three months and travel around the world or every other year, maybe every 18 months. So I've been to, I would spent three months in Greece, uh, three months in Europe, 
Uh, I've been to Costa Rica, not for not that long. Can, can we slow down? Because I think that these are stories that we're kind of missing out on right now is these experiences of traveling. Yeah. And I think this would be so valuable because a lot of people say they want to go to Greece, but they don't know what they would do when they get there. So being able to get a little bit of those stories would be yeah. so cool. Okay, well... Uh, Let's talk about Greece, actually, because Greece was very uh, pivotal in my life. So I uh, spent three months in Greece and, you know, basically you arrive in Athens, which is really gross. It's uh, a beautiful, beautiful city, but, you know, you cannot even see across the street. It's so smoggy. Wow. And, you know, they're only allowed to have a certain amount of taxi cabs in the downtown core and coming from a place like Vancouver where I lived on the water and it was beautiful and sunny and you just think climate change and pollution and all of the things at that point in my at, in time never even entered my mind and then you go to Greece and you know you arrive and as the plane is landing you think you know are we going to go into the side of a mountain because you can hardly even see a thing it's so disgusting the air there and uh, it may be better now you know, I have to give them some credit. It may have improved, but uh, at the time it was awful. So what do you do? I was with, uh, on that particular trip, I was with a girlfriend and a backpack. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I also did some traveling on my own, which when I think about it now, I would never let my daughters do that. Although, you know, they're pretty strong-willed, both of them. They, they'll do whatever they want. But, um, you know, it was crazy dangerous. But anyways, okay, so you land in Athens, and you decide what you want to do. And there's, a, I think it's called Piraeus Harbor. You know, you got to remember, this is a long time ago. There's been a lot of water under the bridge since then. But you decide, you know, kind of which island you want to go to. And there's like a map of all the different islands. So basically, for the entire time, I went from island to island to island to island. And you know, just experience things. The first island we went to was called Skiathos. It was a really northern island. And we chose it because it was not very touristy. And we thought we want to kind of find a place. So you just get on the ferry. And then when you get to the harbor, there's all these people with signs, um, uh, pensions and all these things. So Many, the culture in the Greek islands is to have a lot of these places in their homes. So if you're a kid or a 20-something and you're thinking about traveling there, I wouldn't book a thing. Like, we never booked a thing. We just had a, a backpack with everything we needed in it. And we, you know, went to the harbor and we looked at the people and we thought, okay, that guy doesn't look like he's going to hack us up with an axe. So we'll go with him. And, you know, they would take you off and walk you to your their place and they would show you to have this room. And, you know, some of them had these wide open bathrooms with a bunch of shower heads, which was the communal shower. Um, not always what you, you were like, especially as a woman, you were probably thinking, oh, I don't know whether I want to stay here. But there was always 10 other people who were saying, come see my place, come see my place. So, uh, so that's how we did it. We just went from place to place and we'd stay, you know, we found a place like that we really liked. Um, Skiathos was beautiful. And it's funny because I have always been one of those people, because I had such a weight problem when I was young and a lot of bullying and kind of self-esteem issues, I thought I will never, never go topless. Um, and, you know, all over Europe, 
they go topless. And this was sort of our first experience of having it all around us. So I was there with my girlfriend, Ju Julie, and we're lying on the beach and everyone around us is topless. And she said to me, I feel really stupid because we're not like topless. And I said, well, I'm not taking my top off. And at this point I had lost about a hundred pounds. So I went from being about 220 in high school. And the first year I moved out, I lost a hundred pounds. So I was about 120. So, you know, it wasn't that I didn't look okay. I actually pretty, I looked pretty hot in the day, but <laughs> at that point, but I was just like, really, no way am I going to do this. So anyways, uh, she rolls over and says, well, I, you know, we can't sit here all this, lie here all this time in the sun and all these people have their tops off. So anyways, we both said to each other, okay, I'll do it, but don't look at me. <laughs> <laughs> because it was such a bizarre, uncomfortable thing as North Americans. I mean, we just weren't raised that way. And there would be guys walking up and down the beach selling stuff, and they don't, they totally look you in the eye. You can tell as a woman or as any person if, what someone's looking at when they're talking to you, right? And they, it was like you didn't even have mammary glance. I mean, it was just totally. And yeah, and so after that, by the time we left, we were playing volleyball and all sorts of things, topless. And I came back with the best tan I think I've ever had. But anyways, back to the story of moving around the islands. So, you know, you just go from one harbor to the next. Uh, Mykonos, we went Skiathos, Peros, Eos, Mykonos. Uh, we hooked up with a bunch of American... 20-somethings, and they had rented a, a sailboat. So we spent, I think, a week or two weeks on this sailboat sailing around all these different areas. What a great adventure. And you, I think, probably with all the traveling that I've done, I've gone to a lot of countries that have been depressed or their, their air conditions are, you know, this condition of their uh, air and their watershed and everything is so terrible. Like in the Greek islands, they pump the sewage straight into the ocean. No way. Yeah. It's, I mean, and you're out there swimming around and there's like toilet paper floating around. And, but because it's so wide open, the ocean <laughs> takes it away. But that doesn't make it right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't know whether they still do that, but I can remember thinking how disgusting. And, you know, bathroom facilities. And anyway, so uh, probably the thing that I learned the most from doing all that was we're so lucky here in Canada. Like, it's amazing the the life that we have and, you know, that we're, our human rights are protected and we are in a, I mean, there's lots of, we've got lots of room to, to make it better. But when you go up to other countries and you see people like South Africa, for example, I spent three months in South Africa and we were staying, this is when I was first married, my ex-husband, who I met in Eos in the Greek islands. Um, he was South African. He was a rugby player and he had been traveling all over the world. So uh, we got married. And then when I was on my mat leave, we went for three months to South Africa. And in South Africa, uh, it was right at the end of apartheid. So de Klerk was still in power, but they were doing the transition over. And the community, the black community there, or, you know, anyone of color, like they all had licenses or identity cards that said what degree of color they were. So if you were a cape colored or you were full black or, you know, if you were you had an injection of this particular white guy in your history or whatever, they all had kind of a number on there as to 
who they were and where they kind of ranked in the scheme of things was horrifying. And there was this guy that came and he lived in the garden shed on the property where we were staying. And nicest, nicest guy. And, you know, but would never look you in the eye because, you know, he would always have his head down, right? And he'd help us with groceries and stuff. And, you know, I would always tip him and, you know, thank him and talk to him and stuff. And my mother-in-law who lived in South Africa, uh, brought a box of my husband's old clothes. And um, he had been married for a while, so he was a little bigger <laughs> than his clothes were when he had left South Africa, which is many years before that. So um, I took the box of clothes and I gave them to the guy. And I said, my husband can't wear these. Would you like these things? And to him, it was like every Christmas rolled into one because he was making, you know, maybe five bucks a day to do this job and living in a garden shed with no bathroom. And when my mother-in-law saw him wearing this shirt, she tried to rip it off of him. How dare you? And, you know, basically took the box away. Wow. And that was the attitude in the day. So, um I guess back to the things that I've learned from all this travel is how lucky we are and how we need to defend these rights and freedoms and look after the vulnerable uh, with every fiber of our being. Because, you know, you just look at what's going on in the States right now, and I don't want to get into that too much. But, uh, you know, we are so lucky to live in Canada. And, you know, sometimes I see our society sort of slipping into this them and us. And, you know, instead of embracing our differences and learning from each other and, and kind of growing as a community and a country, um, people are sometimes afraid of things that are different from them or their beliefs don't allow it, I would fight to the, my last breath to make sure that we continue to be a free society where everyone is embraced. I think that that's so important, and I completely agree with you. It's almost like in our society right now, we agree on so much, like 80% of things, yeah. that the only thing that interests us now is the 20% in which we disagree, yes. and we get to go back and forth on Facebook over something, rather than recognizing we're all pretty much on the same page, and I think social media skews our feelings about what other people are valuing, yeah. and that disconnects us and makes us feel like, well, I could never be on the same page as this person who said this, and... Yeah. Usually, there's so much more. We probably eat at the same places. We probably yeah. enjoy the same snacks, going to the same types of lakes. Like, we have so much in common, but that's not what we focus on. No. So, what was it like to come to Chilliwack after all of those experiences and kind of switch over? Because everybody kind of knows that Vancouver people are a bit different. They have, they're more energetic. It's a, it's a more entertaining community where we are much more calm. There's like, we, we enjoy the quiet. So what was that adaptation like? Well, it's so funny because I can remember my friends uh, of many, many years. You're moving to Chilliwack. Are you out of your mind? You will go crazy there. And, and I was very quick to defend the fact that Chilliwack is a lot more than people give it credit for. They, you know, when I lived in Vancouver, I was very involved in the gay community in the West End. I did, I, that was another one of my jobs. I did a lot of um, sewing for uh, gay balls and things like that because there was, you know, they couldn't just go off the rack. 
and especially my one friend, Ian, who was this most gigantic guy. He looked less like a woman than anyone I could possibly imagine. So it was very creative. But, you know, I can remember having a conversation with them and I'm saying, okay, I'm, you know, I'm moving to Chilliwack and I'm going to, I'm going to bring my kids up there. It's going to be great. And they said, you'll go crazy. And I said, you know what? No, I won't. Because people are people no matter where you go. And, and there are, when you look at the society, there are the same percentages of people who like to have fun. It's just a smaller pool. That's all. You know, Chilliwack is not all that different from Vancouver. I would say probably since I've been on council, I look at the, you know, we have now the uh, cultural center. We have this. We have that. We have smaller versions of really everything else. And, you know, that's always been one of my things, particularly with public art, is to try and bring into our community um, the things that might be missing to make it good for everyone. Because all the people who love those things are here. They're here in the same percentages as they are in the city, in in my belief. Um, and the thing that we have that they don't have is we have the mountains and the lake and the ability to, you know, all the trails. And, you know, I'm not an athletic person. I don't use really any of those things, but I love to look at them. You know, I love to, you know, look around and think, wow, what a beautiful place we live. And I'll tell you a story. When I was living, I lived in Richmond for a period of time when I was first married. And one of the things that really made me decide that I needed to get out of the city was I was uh, cleaning my yard. I had my side gates out open and I had my two little kids there and I had just recently separated. And um, this car drove by and they threw a beer bottle at me, which narrowly missed my head. And I was just like, yahoo kids. They thought it was really funny, whatever. And I thought, you know what? This is not where I want to raise my kids. I want to raise my kids in a place where they can ride their bikes. And, and I think that's something that, that we have more of here in Chilliwack than they do in Vancouver. You know, neighborhoods are, are safer. And, and, you know, as we grow, unfortunately, we lose a little bit of that all the time. Does that answer your question? Yes, very much so. And I think that that's so valuable because you are supporting the arts here in Chilliwack. And I think that we don't always do a good job of explaining why the arts are so important. Because a lot of people, they know art's important. Like, even when I was growing up, people would value the arts. And I'd be like, I don't understand. Like, it's just a painting. But there's there's yeah. a story behind that. And once we start to understand what people were trying to grapple with, understand and develop, how long it takes for them to develop those skills, you have a lot more humility towards yeah. it. And David was a previous guest, and he was explaining how he views the world and how intricate the details can be yeah. and the different colors. And yeah. for a lot of people, we don't even notice those things. We don't yeah. think about it. We're just about the next movie coming out, the, ne the yeah. next Netflix show, and we don't take time to notice the details that artists are willing to take the time and show you because I've had people see art and go, well, that's just like a stool by a barn. Like, what is that? And it's like, but that's telling us, like, that's where we're from. And that's taking something that we don't even pay attention to and we kind of skip and giving it the time that it deserves. And I, I liked this analogy that children kind of remind us of that and they'll slow down and they'll point out the stool and they'll be like, I don't understand. And they'll play with it and you'll be like, that's so much fun. And this kid's yeah. having so much fun with a box and we're looking at it as just a box, but it's so much more depending on your perspective. Yeah. And I think having you on to be able to share how Chilliwack has developed its art and the value and the details in behind it, yeah. how the cultural center came about is so, so valuable for us to understand yeah. this pillar in our community. Yeah. You know, uh, 
I sort of like to look at, you look at a group of kids and uh, there's a bunch of kids that really love sports. There's a bunch of kids that are involved in ballet or in this, that, and the other thing. But I think in a lot of cases, the kid that gravitates towards drawing and painting and creating uh, visual arts, uh, there's not, not as much for them. And it's not as celebrated. You know, you look around and, you know, you've got this sports team and that sports team. And I think one of my priorities in dealing with the public art committee and anything to do with the arts in Chilliwack is to bring that piece for those kids. So those kids don't feel disenfranchised. They, you know, they're the artsy kids are always the geeky loser kids. I, you know, I don't believe that, but you know, the perception quite often is, well, that kid can't play sports. So they're trying to put them into the arts, right? Well, that's, that's not fair. That's not right. We all have our own individual gifts to bring. And I think in a community that is growing and thriving, you need to celebrate all of the aspects of it. So we have amazing sports fields. We have amazing trails. Um, we have, um, now we have the cultural center where people can go and see the performing arts. And if you're a young girl or a young boy who's into dance or theater, or, um, I look at the Simpson kids, um, Jackie and, and Jackie Simpson and Scott Simpson, their kids were always into the arts and performing arts and incredibly talented. And if that cultural center had not been there, um, there wouldn't have been that avenue for them to excel. Like, uh, they're one of their sons now is a, uh, you know, a recognized artist that's, uh, you know, I think he's selling a lot of his works and his, the daughter, I'm not sure where she's working now. I'm sorry, I've forgotten her name, but, um, you know, they're, they're both per pursuing that, um, those abilities. And unless you have a community that offers all of those things, then, the people in our community that would excel and find a life that is just so amazingly fulfilling would never have those opportunities as kids at, at the time when they um, are sort of figuring out what they want to do. You know, I mean, the arts has always been a huge part of my life. Even though I didn't pursue it, I decided that I liked to make the yummy money at the telephone company and have a life that was solid and whatever. I always had other things that I pursued and um, living in Vancouver, it did give me that opportunity. So I'm glad that we have that now here. And I think it's growing all the time. Uh, there always needs to be opportunities for every segment of society. I completely agree. And for things like the Chilliwack Mural Festival and the art that was put up, it reminds us of the story that we have underlying our community that's so important. And it can, once you see the murals, you're like, oh, this is amazing. Who is this person? Why was it done? And then yeah. it pulls you in and it reminds you of the value of the cultural center where some people go, well, what's practical about like drawing a picture? What a waste of money. Yeah. And what a waste of money putting all that money into a cultural center. You know, there's only a certain percentage of the population that uses it well there's only a certain percentage of the population that uses the sports fields yeah you, you know but anyways going back yeah I agree and going back to uh, the mural festival and any other kind of public art uh, first of all I have to say huge kudos to Amber and also um, you know all the other initiatives that we have taken to bring um, murals and public art and you know we did the Canada 
150 thing where it was a mosaic of all sorts of young artists and old. And I have a little mosaic in there. One of mine is in there. And, you know, every time you do something like that, the most important thing that that does is, number one, it recognizes that art is valuable. And number two, it makes people stand there and think. Like, even if you're not someone who wants to be an artist or really understands art, you stand there and you think, like, you know, some of them, not any of the ones that we have downtown, but, you know, with art, um, you look at it and you think, well, I wonder what that's about, you know? (laughs) And, you know, it might seem really odd to you. Like, um, just to digress for a second, I spent... um, I don't know, it was three weeks, I think, with uh, the University of the Fraser Valley was doing a trip to the Biennale in Venice, um, which is an art festival from all over the world. It's an, it's, and I went with them on this art study tour um, a couple years ago. And uh, it was just, we stayed in a monastery. It was, you know, very bare bones kind of thing. But they had arranged for us to get into all these incredible exhibits and things. And there was so many things that even I, as an artist, looked at and went, Oh my gosh, what the heck is that? You know, and, and, but, but it is really, art is really meant to invoke kind of feelings of interest and wonder and all sorts of things. Like, I can't tell you the amount of times I've heard people say, well, my kindergarten kid could have painted that. Yeah, but (laughs) that's not the point. The point is that the artist had a message there. So what is the message that they're trying to convey? Or what was it that appealed to them about that? And it's not really quite that simple. But a lot of people just kind of don't understand art and think that it's kind of a waste. So, Well, I completely agree. And it's that lack of humility of like, I, I've never seen this before. I don't know the artist. So maybe I don't know something and maybe I need to be patient and wait for more information or the artist to walk by and explain their idea behind it. Maybe I don't know everything I need to know. And I think that people can lack that, especially when so many things are laid out for us, like good TV shows for the most part, they tell you exactly what you need to know and they'll repeat it in three different scenes. Yeah, and what you want to th- what they want you to think. Exactly. You, you know, that's the thing about art. Everybody thinks something differently about it. And what a great exercise for the brain. Because, you know, as you say, quite often it's so totally spelled out for us that, you know, it requires no effort. And and art is really good for that because it makes you think about things. It makes you wonder. Absolutely. So what has that development like been like in Chilliwack? Because the cultural center did arise. What was that process like to get that developed? Well, I have to say that um, that was Pat Clark, uh, who was a city councillor at the time. Um, and I came on in 2008 and they were breaking ground. So I did not see the early phases of it. And I really can't take any credit uh, for it, except for the fact that I have been a huge supporter of it, and I have been on their board, um, although uh, Jeff Shields is doing it now. But um, it was, you know, it was a, a coming together of different arts and cultural s- groups in Chilliwack that needed a space. And so there was some money that everybody sort of put in, and they were going to be like the premier uh, kind of um, starters of it. And they, you know, over time it's kind of morphed and um you know program and we have michael cade who does you know the programming and that sort of stuff there but um you know to sort of answer your question i think at the time and i remember 
you know, I was working for the chamber at the time and watching the pushback from the community, you know, we we're not a large enough community to have this. Well, you know, I think, first of all, we've grown hugely and, and I think that it's been proven that it's, you know, a really great thing to have in the community. Uh, and hopefully the people that didn't want it at the time realize the value that it has brought to us. I mean, there's been lots of great shows and things that have happened there, but it's also opened the door for kids to learn how to play different instruments. You know, there's all these different rooms. They can do pottery. They can do, uh, you know, all sorts of different forms of arts. and. Um, and that's what it was meant to do. And and Pat Clark really, really pushed for that. And she worked really hard. And she managed to bring in some money for it. And we got some money. I think there was some sort of um, government, like provincial government involvement as well. But I can't really say for sure because all of those kinds of things were worked out before I came along. But uh, I think it was a big, probably a big part of why I wanted to go on council was the fact that I saw that, you know, there was room to create more of a multicultural community, you know, and by that I don't mean just different uh, nationalities, but also different interests and passions. Right? Absolutely. And I think that that's so important because there's so many people who feel disconnected from the community and need a spot where they can go and practice drawing, even though they're not expert drawers, and paint yeah. and develop friendships. And I don't think that we recognize that enough because we're so, we all have our social groups and we're supposed to stay within them kind of attitude yeah. that going out, like my mom's had an opportunity to utilize the cultural center and make friends and meet people and use yeah. the library and learn new skills and learn to crochet and do these things in the community that allows her to expand her social network so she doesn't feel so alone during a pandemic. Like we couldn't have yeah. expected this coming, but it's so valuable to build those connections so you don't feel alone in your community. And a lot of people move here and they're looking for how do I get involved and that's such an excellent place to start mm -hmm. so can you tell us about some of your favorite art pieces is it the visual arts is it music what what inspires you uh I think probably the favorite art piece that we've had in town uh for me uh was uh pencil fingers um goodness he used to be on my art committee too and I've forgotten what his actual real name but the piece at five corners yes it had that to was be. that was temporary yeah and it was always meant to be temporary and when he did it it was I just loved it so much that I immediately regretted that it was temporary yeah. I wish we had put it somewhere where it would still be there there's lots of of course it's covered up now um there's lots of photographs of it and, you know, there's lots of um, opportunity maybe to put something else somewhere. Uh, the other one that I love too is the new Vetter Bridge. Uh, I think it really embraces, uh, you know, our Indigenous community and, and the history and the different, like, it was so well thought out. Like David Jimmy, when he, and the artist that he worked with, um, I mean, the fact that all the paddles represent different uh groups within our community and um and the way that they face even um has a meaning and you know i don't i don't uh profess to understand entirely what all the the nuance nuances are of it but i think it's incredibly beautiful uh it was also 
quite expensive. And, you know, I wish we had millions of dollars to do all sorts of really amazing things like that, because the more expensive projects give you more leeway in how fabulous you can make it. You know, and, and you know, we've, we started off, I think, with about a $20,000 budget for public art in Chilliwack. And this, hopefully, if this next budget passes, it's uh, increasing. Uh, I can't say by how much, but we just did objectives and measures. And, you know, I, I always get, you know, I'm always, I believe when you're budgeting for the city, and I know we're going to, we're probably going to talk a little more about this, but um, that, all the basics need to be covered. So you have to have good roads and good infrastructure. And, you know, if and you, you want to deal with all the things that could become a problem. Like It's just like when you're doing a budget for home. You make sure there's food on your table, a roof over your head. You know, you have to cover those things. But when there is a bit of, you know, when it comes to the discretionary spending or what you're working towards, I'm always fighting for the arts. And, you know, the Resident Council laughs at me and yet... They all, they laugh at me just because I'm such a loud mouth. But, but honestly, they also agree that these things are good too, right? But that's where the sort of the pushing and shoving starts with the different interests on council. Like, you know, you have, um, we have such a great council that we have business people and farmers and, you know, so it, it, it we definitely represent the whole community really equally. And, and I'm probably sort of the weird anomaly that's come from the city, who's traveled around the world, who's enjoyed art in countries all over the world. And so I'm constantly badgering them for more money. And I, I actually got some this time. So that's, you know, really exciting. Um, so uh, what was the question? I forgot. No. <laughs> well, well, I, I want to get into the, the budget part of things, oh, but yeah. I also want to give you a lot of credit because I was listening to a city council meeting and you were talking about the upcoming budget and people were allowed to write in their surveys yeah. and the responses and you were really pushing, like, are we going to get this out on social media? How are we going to do this? And it was just like, well, I'm so grateful that you're saying these things because I didn't know that. And if I hadn't watched this video, I wouldn't have known that there was an upcoming budget meeting. Yeah. And so I went and I tried to do it. I did do it, but it was so difficult because it, it gives you like $500 and yeah. it asks you to try and figure out where to put the money. Where would you spend your money? Yes. If yeah. I can spend it however I like, how would I like it set up? And it was just yeah. like, oh no, like I don't know how to, I set all of it up. And then I was like, I spent my $500 like too quickly. Now I have to go <laughs> back in and try to re-edit everything. And I'm was, not going to be eating for a while, but... Yeah, yeah. exactly, because there's so many different issues yeah. that jump to your mind, and you're like, oh, I need to spend $500 on this just this one issue, and then you're yeah. like, well, you can't do that. You have to do a balanced approach, and I think that that would be so valuable if everyone in the community had to go through that, because then yeah. you start to realize that... Well, you can't just not do new infrastructure. You can't just leave all your roads to fall apart That's and right, focus yeah. on just one thing. And so what is that like for you to have to sit down and prioritize so many important issues? And it's like none of them deserve to be thrown aside and say, don't bother. I think, you know, I think one of the things that makes being a city councillor so much easier, and particularly in Chilliwack, is that we have an amazing team at City Hall. And so they all have their areas that they're responsible for. And, and when it comes to objectives and measures, which, which is what we call it, you know, what we need to focus on in the city, they all come with presentations on, um, you know, 
how are our roads doing? What what equipment do we need to replace? How are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? And they all have their areas of expertise, and they make council aware of what we need. And and you know, and they're very very frugal because we are you know, first of all, as a city, we have no debt. We're one of the very few cities that, well, if any other cities, we don't have any debt. And we, that's the way we save and spend. So they don't ask for anything that's not really essential. And so they make us really aware. And then there's other things that we may want to see, like, uh, you know, when we see all those, right, and we know, okay, all that stuff needs to be covered. And, you know, and, you know, i I dare them to try and come to the table with something that's not absolutely essential because, you know, one of us will say, well, what do you need that truck for? Or, you know, can't we get a few more years out of this one? And, you know, and stuff like that. So, but they're so good. Like they are so good and they care about the city so much. And then there's a certain amount that's sort of discretionary funding. So do we want to build another sports field? And do we, and that's where sort of the wrestling comes in. But as far as, you know, the fundamental stuff, the city staff really, they do all the work and say, you know, this is how much money we're going to need for this. And they go out to competitive bids and they do all this stuff to make sure that, you know, we're getting the best possible deal and the best kind of asphalt that's going to last the longest and what kind of paint you put on bike lanes and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And they price check and you know, they're, they're pretty awesome. That they is, make us look smart. I love that. That is so cool because <laughs> we don't, we don't ever think of that when yeah. we're driving through the community, when we see a new road built, we're like, oh good, a new road. But we don't think about no. what quality of paint are they using? How long is it going to last? And yeah. that's where someone's really taking care of us and never really gets that recognition. It's, it's like those little nubby road divider things, those reflector things. Yeah. Do you know that every time they clear snow, they all get snapped off? I did not know that. So there's other kinds that you can put that go under. like they, Downwards, they do, right? Yeah, they yeah. go into a little scoop and they sit in there. But they're like 10 times more expensive. So we always are, you know, and, and we put in new roads and we'll put in a certain amount of those kind. But they're expensive and so we never really do it all in those or, you know, we would never replace them all in those because it's too expensive. But over time, we move a little bit more and a little And they last almost forever. But, you know, they're so crazy expensive and those other little reflector ones so you really have to balance off and this is the thing that our public works uh, glenn mcpherson is brilliant like he knows you know these ones will last this many years and yeah we'll get a certain amount of those because they're better but they're super expensive so then we'll get these other ones and they get scraped off every year but then the crews go around and how much does it cost us to stick them all back down again after the the winter season is over and you know things like that like, we don't even have to think about that. They they make sure we know it. Yeah. But, yeah. Exactly. I think, and that's so important because that's what brings us together as a community is recognizing that people care about making sure you're safe because those things go towards safety. They make sure we know where the road yeah. is in those circumstances. It's not a trivial, nonsensical, like, who cares type of issue. It's yeah. how can we keep our community safe? How can we safeguard? I've seen so many new um, protections on near... Um, School zones, yes, and more boldly lit. And so, what has that been like to know that your your community's safer because of this? It, well, it's good. Like those things, those uh, crosswalk things that have kind of like ref they have 
I don't know, reflector things. But anyways, when they push them, they like flash all the way across. And they're the new kind of save everyone thing. So we're trying to put as many of those in as possible. So now that's one thing that we do is we sit there and sort of say, okay, what areas have the most blind crossings, the worst areas or whatever, put them in there first. And then, you know, um, I mean, safety, obviously, the basics are always going to be the most important things. And then we plan for projects, but it takes us a few years to save for them. And a lot of times, like with the provincial government or the federal government, they have grant money available, but you have to have your part put away. So we will say, okay, we want to build a new library, which we did in Sardis, right? And I was on board then. Want to build a new library. So then you start packing away that money to build the new library. And people um, are naturally impatient. You know, the people in the community, we want our own library. And, you know, they think we're doing nothing, but we're putting the money away. And then we wait for a grant, a literacy grant or whatever to come from the province or the federal government. And they'll say, well, we'll pay a third. The province will pay a third. And where's your third? And if you don't have your third, you're out of luck. Yeah. So we have to make sure that we always have that money put away. And, you know, a lot of communities have have uh, uh, borrowed and, you know, that over time. And so, I mean, I know when I was in my 20s, I was just like a complete spendaholic. I loved, you know, I had all these different areas of income and things I wanted to buy. But then, you know, eventually do you get yourself in debt. And then you spend all your time just trying to make your minimum payments on your credit cards and this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, um, it's the same thing for local government. If you don't owe any money, you don't waste any of the tax dollars servicing your debt. And, yeah. and so you can do more things. Like I look at, that's why we're not as much in trouble I mean, we're not in trouble, but I mean, obviously during COVID, things have gone down, um, revenues are down, we've given, you know, the community lots of breaks as far as paying their taxes late and, you know, utility things and stuff like that. And we've been able to do that because we don't have that debt. We're in areas, other areas where, you know, you have a mayor complaining that the government didn't give them nearly enough money and now they're going to have to raise their taxes to maybe 12 or 13 percent we won't mention any names but they have huge debt and that's you know so a huge portion of what the taxpayers are paying goes towards service servicing those debts and you know, so obviously they can't do as much except for buy chairs well and i think that that's true especially in canada right now because i think they were talking about um reducing our credit rating and those things have impact on the communities and I think that it's important to raise that awareness because a lot of people in the maybe it wasn't it was the last election I think ta raising taxes and lowering taxes was a big conversation for the community and there were people who wanted to run for mayor who wanted to raise taxes and others who didn't and that yeah. played a huge role in the conversation I had people saying well I don't want my taxes up and it was like this is so interesting because it's it's a point of contact and discussion that seems to be important important to the community yeah. just as much as council and that's that's so important that we're all on the same page about how do we manage our spending how do we do it responsibly and it's so nice to be able to come on and say like we're not in this circumstance we didn't have to do outrageous amounts of debt yeah. and go through those processes yeah. so the other part I wanted to ask about just while we were talking about the cultural center okay, is, yeah. is that whole area is just set up for community and for yeah. everyone like you can go for a run all the way around you have the 
uh, Chilliwack Coliseum, you have the Cultural Center, you have the Landing Leisure Center, you have the Curling Club, yeah. you have the Evergreen Hall, all on one city block. And we're going to have something new. I mean, we have something new we're working on right now that's actually being built. It's called a pump track. Okay. And it is the biggest pump track apparently in North America. I don't know how that happened, but, you know, because we don't have a huge amount of space there. But uh, a pump track is something that they use for, like, bike course type things. You can tell how much I know about this because, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not very athletic. I'm very uncoordinated. But anyways, um, it's this pump track thing and, and they're talking about possibly there'll be um, international or national competitions coming here just to use that pump track. That's one more thing that's being added there now and is well under construction and it's, it's for bikes sort of and they, it goes up and down and it's got all sorts of cool corners and it's very engineered beautifully. And so that's being added to that area. That area, um, you know, at one time it was the exhibition park, right? And it was so sad for so many people who had, you know, used that area uh, for so many years. And then it was kind of with the the um, Red Barn, oh, I'm losing my mind now, Heritage Park. Yes. It was all moved there. Yeah. Right. And so a lot of those kind of things went there that would have originally, but it, but the, the master plan for that area has turned into such a, a great kind of uh, recreational, as you say, there's so many different things you can do there. And you will continue to see that area grow and be enhanced. Um, the other thing that is really boring, but very expensive is that it has to be, we're paving the whole thing eventually i can't remember whether it's going to be this year or whatever but um you know trying to pave it all so that there's lots of parking for people in that area because um you know gravel parking lots are hard on the community they're hard on the road system all the rest of it because people bring that out onto the road so that area all has to be paved and it's been sort of a line item that has been there and sometimes it's been bumped and then it's been brought back and I can't remember exactly which year we're doing it in now but I mean just paving that parking lot is like astronomically expensive yeah but you have you know those one that's one of those boring things you have to plan for yeah and it'll make a big difference to the community it's just like Spadina right now is also being beautified and there's going to be planter gardens and stuff down the middle and better parking and better traffic flow throughout there. It's all to enhance that area to make it better for the residents who live on that street and also for the people that are visiting the curling center, the, um, the landing sports center. Uh, you know, there's pickleball that goes on in the landing sports center like constantly and yeah. you know that at some point needs all to be resurfaced because right now it's cement and it's got to be and pickleball is a huge thing in Chilliwack now so we're trying to accommodate you know everyone just like the arts and everything else you want to accommodate everyone's interests and so it's um yeah it's got to have that sort of bouncy floor in it right now it's cement I wouldn't want to be playing on cement like what if you fall you could crack a knee or whatever but anyways yeah so you well, know, I think it's so important because 
when you're going there, it's it's so cool that you can take your kid to swimming lessons and then maybe take them to curling or take them from swimming lessons to go and do art or have your son go and play hockey and then yeah. have like all of these yeah. different activities that you can do. There's a skate park and that's where I think that the community is going to be pulled so much is because there's so much to do there and it's all a one stop. It doesn't feel like the arts are in their own category where you have to drive somewhere obscure to go and do art. It's yeah. it's right in there with hockey and it has that equal leveling, which I think to your point of trying to raise the understanding of the cultural center and the value of the arts yeah. is happening when you can have all of those things together. Yeah. And I think downtown is going through a huge revitalization yes. right now. So can we talk about that and what that's been like to watch for you? Because you started in 2008 yeah. in a very bleak time in our economy and now yeah. we're now we're here. Yeah, we had that one building on the corner and I've forgotten what it was called now, which is terrible. I have the worst memory, but it's not that I don't care about this stuff, but I forget the, the Empress of, Hotel? There, no, well, it was the Empress Hotel, but then there was also that building that was on the corner, and it started, I think, with an H. But anyway, um, and it was all boarded up, and the Empress Hotel had all sorts of issues with, you know, leaking grossness and and it was falling down and it you know I think at one point when I looked at the Empress Hotel I thought oh I wish we could take that beautiful building and just kind of and the Paramount I know you were involved yeah. with that yeah. so I mean there's there's um, the revitalization of that area it was a difficult it was a difficult one for council when I started in 2008 um, we you know the the area was really starting to fall into dis disrepair repair and you know we didn't have the homeless issue that we have now um that sort of has come over time but um at at that particular time it was just the fact uh that most of the business and that sort of thing had moved to Sardis or you know they were moving out to Eagle Landing I'm not sure whether Eagle Landing was there at that point or not but you know it was that sort of the excitement had fallen away from the downtown and we have a beautiful downtown but it also needs it needed something so you know there was consultants that were brought in I think at one point uh John Jansen wanted a a Dutch village down there that was the, the concept or it was going to be this that or the other thing and you know there was so many we all read a book called the tipping point and you know I'm not much of a reader I read for education only I actually hate reading and that was part of the reason probably I hated school because I really didn't like reading or math so you know that was a problem but anyways um and that, you know, the basic premise was that, you know, you get to a point, you you fix the little things, you get to a point where you have to do sort of a major thing that will tip it in the right direction. So what is that thing? What are we going to put all this money into that's going to make that kind of a difference? So, you know, what, what ended up happening is we bought up all of those properties downtown. You know, we bought them from local people or people that weren't around anymore. And basically, or I don't think we had to expropriate anything in that area, but, you know, we bought all those properties and it was, um, and we put them together as one block. And then we put it out to a developer thinking, okay, now we have millions of dollars invested in this to try and but you know it's it's more of a it's not a real estate fund it's a social fund you know you're thinking out about it from that perspective that you know you want to improve that area how are you going to make it how are you going to hit the tipping point yeah so we spent all this money uh, bought all the properties 
and then we put it out to tender. And there was some very interesting concepts that came back. And we, uh, at the end of the day, we picked the Alger Brothers um, because I think they really showed to us that they respected the historic presence of the downtown and they really wanted to recreate that. So when they couldn't save it, what they were going to replace it with was going to be a nod to the to the original buildings and the original feel of the downtown and all the rest of it. And um, we voted and, it, you know, it was, it was tough going. It wasn't, a, a, you know, unanimous. People, we all sort of thought, well, I think this would really revitalize the area. And I would really, you know, and at the end of the day, we ended up picking the Alger Brothers. And I think they've done an amazing job. Uh, and I think it will help us deal with some of the social issues down there. But bearing in mind that, you know, you move them out of the downtown core, you move the people who are struggling, it doesn't mean they go away. It just means they're not in that area, right? Um, and social issues are really the responsibility of the provincial government. And over the last few years, um, with an incredibly strong team at City Hall, Karen Stanton, uh, she and um, Mike, uh, what's his last name? I've forgotten. Anyways, doesn't, that's not, I just want to give him some credit. <laughs> but anyways, I forgot what his last name is. Anyway, um, they have worked very hard to get us on the radar of the provincial government to say, hey, we have a real big problem here. Because we weren't even listed as one of the cities that were in jeopardy with, you know, homelessness issues and all the rest of it. We were not, and now we are, and now we're getting funding and now we're getting um, places um, for these people to, to live and be uh, helped to, to have the wraparound services and things for them. Um, one of the reasons why I think all of the municipalities have come up against uh, dealing with so many social issues is that they close Riverview and at, Riverview had some horrible um, human rights kind of violations from what I understand. It was sort of before my time, but people were treated badly there. And they were, it was almost like, you know, the one flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of asylum-y kind of place. And instead of making improvements and in, and improving the lives and the care and all of those things, they just closed it. And they pushed all the people that were suffering out into the communities. And, you know, at the time they, they were probably on a medication regime and they were doing well and all the rest of it. And they, all of those things sort of fell away. And these people then migrated to the streets because they're not being medicated. They're not being helped. They're, they're kind of left to fend for themselves and, and pushed it out to the cities. And then, you know, as, we have people with mental illness and addiction issues um, increasing. There's also nowhere to send them. So it's become the problem of every city. And, you know, Chilliwack is not alone in that. Um, and so I think, you know, that if we could go back to uh, the, the type of system where we actually did have a river view, where people could, with really severe mental illness issues, could go and people could work with them. And then they put them into, like, group home, kind of. You know, once they got them stabilized and all the rest of it. Like, you shouldn't feel like if you go there, you're there forever. 
you know, that, you know, they could put them into group homes and they could be monitored and make sure they're taking their medication so that they could live happy lives. Like everybody, every human being wants to be happy and feel normal. When you don't feel normal, it's hard to make good decisions. And you end up on, you know, in a lot of cases, these people end up on the streets and they're just not getting the supports that they need. Um, so anyway, I mean, the social issues are always going to be there. I think that we need a really strong focus on um, managing it better. And I think certainly Ken uh, and City Council have done, made great strides in that. But it's really hard to know what will work. What's the best? What's the best thing to do? I completely agree. And I think that this also goes back to 2008 because we had a recession. And I don't think a lot of us realize that that is part of the reason that housing prices went so high after the fact that yeah. we paid so many consequences that we don't really put it at the foot of such a big um, financial impact yeah. that caused a lot of people. I remember my mom worked at Creekside at one point in time and the people upstairs were struggling with addictions, but they were able to do it in this like 150 square foot, 200, like not a very big place, but they had a place where they could, their social assistance checks would be able to pay for them to live in this small little nook and cranny area. To be warm. To, to feel that they were in their dry. own home. Yeah. And that when 2008 hit, all of that went away. Now these prices are going up and those people can't afford to live anymore, live there anymore. And they're pushed onto the streets. And then when I was working as a native court worker, it didn't feel like the issue was like a lack of housing, which I do think is absolutely a factor. It was that they didn't want to leave anyone behind. And they've developed their own culture on the streets of like, my closest friend is like Nick and I, I would never leave Nick under any circumstances ever. And it's like, okay, well, how do I get you housing if you don't want to leave this person? And it's like, now I have to try and find a group place where you can both be together and yeah. that limits the options and people don't want to abandon their friends and family yeah. when they're on the streets as well. And so we run into these issues of like, I could never convince someone to abandon their, their comrade on the streets yeah. because it is this mindset of like, we're surviving this together. Yeah. And that's stronger than me coming in and saying, oh, I have this solution and you can just move out to Promontory and we have like a nice treatment bed for you and it'll all be easy yeah. like they don't want to leave that person behind yeah. and so we run into these types of issues and I'm grateful that I've heard experts talk from FVRD and they they get it they see that we're up against very complex social issues and that's so important and so inspiring because people will read the newspaper and get very frustrated that this isn't a fixed problem and it's like but we have the best yeah. minds who understand the nuances of the issue yeah. and I think that that's so valuable so can we talk a little bit more about what it's like to be a city councillor and what it's like to run because that that must have been such a big moment to decide to run in 2008. It was um, at the time I was uh, I was working as the CEO of the Chamber of Commerce in a job that I loved. I have to say, um, but it's like anything, you know. Once you you're in a job like that, you become more aware of your city, and you become more aware of the things that you would like to. Um, the input that you'd like towards change and improvement, especially when you love your city. Like I love Chilliwack and, and I thought, you know, there, there will never be a better time than now because I am armed with information and knowledge that I never had before that. Because honestly, you know, you, you go about your day-to-day -day life and if you're not working in the kind of a, 
an environment where you're getting that information. So, and I was also writing articles for the Progress and the Times uh, about business. And, um, you know, so my name was out there. I was uh, involved. I had a lot of clients from TELUS, our BC Tell days that were in, and so they knew my names. There was a lot of business people from there. I was uh, also the president of the Rotary Club, the Chilliwack Mount Sham Rotary Club at the time, uh, 2007 to 2008. So I was, you know, people knew my name from that. And I thought, you know, a big part of being elected is name recognition. And, and if you, you want to do this for the right reasons. I always talk people when they come to me and they say, you know, I'm thinking about running for council. And I, I say to them, well, why? Why do you want to run for council? Well, you know, I want to be an MLA someday, or I want to do this someday. And and those things are all, you know, valid. But I think the most important thing is that you really want to make a difference in your community, and you love it here. And it is, you know, people think that the job is all about glory and all the rest of it. The best city councillors that I've ever worked with are people that listen more than they talk. Like, I get criticized for that because I don't, talk that much at city council meetings but if somebody's already asked a question or I've already heard what I need or you know I don't have any questions I'm not going to just talk for the for the happiness of hearing my own voice and I think that you have to kind of check your ego (laughs) like is it about your ego is it going to make you feel good to be you know a city councillor because I'm going to tell you it's it's not always nice like it's not nice to be a city councillor but anyway so that's You know, at that point, I decided to run because I thought, well, maybe I would have a chance. And then you go through um, all candidates debates and things like that. And and you realize how little you do know, first of all, you become very insecure because you think, oh, my gosh, I didn't know that or I didn't know this. And uh, and it's humbling. And then you go to the election night and you think at the first one, it was like, oh, well, you know, if I don't get in, I gave it a good try and all the rest of it. And I did. And I was like really shocked because I didn't really 100% expect to get in. And, you know, and I still have huge insecurities left from being bullied and, and, you know, not having a very supportive mother at times and all the rest of it. And I, you know, so insecurity is a big part of who I am. Like I can be really brave out there and I'm kind of mouthy, but honestly, you know, I was insecure about it. And, and I was so excited. And then you get into the job and you, you, you know, they always say, you don't know what you don't know. And really, I didn't know a lot. Like, <laughs> and so the first year is, is a big learning curve. Um, but as I say, if you're doing it for the right reasons, you'll put in your time, you keep your mouth shut a little bit and try and just understand. Seek to understand is the most important thing. Um, and nowadays, like the last few elections, so how many elections have I been through? At the end of this will be 14 years, but the first two terms, I think, were three years, and then four and four. So that's four elections I've been through. And the last one was particularly difficult, I think, because so because of social media. And and probably the last couple of terms have been way more difficult because of social media. I think social media is is an amazing tool to get information out there. I use it a lot for the hospice society. I use it a lot as a city councillor. 
I think it's probably one of the biggest services I give the community is to make them aware of what their opportunities are for feedback or, you know, what's going on. We're having a hazardous waste thing, whatever, like all the services that we provide are useless unless people know about them. So I think from that perspective, it's a very, very powerful tool. But for me, it's the trolls. It's the people that get behind their keyboard and say, they're doing nothing when I know for the last six years we've been fighting for dollars or we've been fighting for this or this, that, and the other thing. They're so stupid. They're so, you know, uh, just, you know, they're doing this for political reasons. They're, you know, after this person. When it is just absolute baloney. Like, you know, I don't think there's any of us. I mean, over time, I've worked some, with some really horrible city councillors, and I've worked with some good ones. And for the most part, I think people do it for the right reasons. They care about their community. They do it with honesty and integrity and try and work super, super hard because they care. And so, it, you know, it hurts my feelings when people say mean things about me. <laughs> and, and, you know, most people say, oh, well, you know, it's just water off a duck's back or whatever. Or you signed up for this is the one you get a lot, which I yeah. completely disagree with because yeah. you're like. I signed up to work for you. Yeah. I didn't sign up to be. Yeah, but sorry, I inter interrupted no you. No worries. I just, I wanted to say that you have so much connections to the community, even if you removed the title of city councillor, that for anyone to question your decisions in that way is just. It's kind of silly because you have so many important ties to the community. You are fighting for the right things. And I think that that's the case with a lot of city councillors. Mm -hmm. you, you have a special resume of like, I've been out there. I've been giving my free time because I care. Yeah. And so for someone to turn around and question you or to leave those comments, it's like, that's not even fair if you look at her resume. Because when I looked at it, it was just like, wow, there is a lot on here. She's <laughs> not getting, she's just giving her time because she yeah. cares. And yeah. some city councillors are there for the right reasons, but they still don't have that volunteer background that shows that they are willing to just work for free. And that's where you mm -hmm. can clearly see your passion. So yeah. please go on. Well, yeah. And it's, I think, um, I think that it's really counterproductive for a community. And there's a lot of people that are not going into politics. There's a lot of people who are leaving politics. Um, who are there for the right reasons and doing really great things because they just can't handle it anymore. I can't, you know, and I've been somewhat lucky because I'm not overly controversial in any way. You know, I'm pretty liberal in the way that I view our community and the world. Um, I'm certainly uh, well-traveled and I understand that every single human being brings their gift to this. And, you know, it's unfair for people to be judgy and all the rest of it. So, um, so yeah, it, you know, it hurts my feelings. It's made me cry many times, you know, and, and I think to myself, well, stop, that's so stupid. Like, don't be like that. You know, everybody's entitled to opinion. And I 100% agree with that. I want to know what the community thinks. Probably the hardest thing about being a counselor right now is not being able to have people at meetings because that input matters to me. But just be nice about it. Like, say to me, instead of saying, I think you're stupid 
and useless, and what the hell does she do anyway, and just say, I don't understand why we haven't been able to solve this. Or when you made this decision about this thing, can you can you explain to me what went into that decision so I can try and understand why you made that decision that way? You know, be respectful. As I would be respectful towards you. And, you know, I try so hard not to bite when it's out there, you know, not to respond, not to engage in disrespectful conversations. If you want to come come at me in a respectful way, I am there for you all day. But the moment that that happens, I, you know, I just shut right off. And I don't think there's too many people that don't. You know, you go into fight or flight. Well, I will choose flight every time when I know I'm dealing with someone who is not going to be reasonable. Yeah. And that totally makes sense. I think that that's where we run into issues of discouraging people to want to run and lead our community. And it's this lack of knowledge and entitlement that there's some sort of issue and they're kind of grandstanding at you, telling you, well, if we just fix this problem, the whole world, like fixing the homeless issue is a serious issue. And I don't think anybody's on the other side of it. But people will regularly say like, well, nobody's doing anything about it. And it's like, you don't understand how complex these issues are. And if I sat you down and walked you through, well, we could do this, but there's four consequences to it and we could do this but there's these problems that arise yeah. and people- and will this work and is this what they want and yeah. you have to understand that there ha- there's free will involved yeah and and you know there are laws that protect people from being forced to do things they don't want to do yeah. and and you know and addiction is an illness and a disease and you know uh, yeah it's it's challenging but on the other hand when you get a win it's thrilling you know, when you make the right decision and it seems to be working and uh, people are thriving, wow, what a great feeling that is. And I think that's part of it. That keeps you going. Absolutely. And I think that it's so it's so nice to look at city council and see all of these fantastic stories because each one of you have come th- from different places. Totally different ac- places. Accomplished different <laughs> things and yeah. have done it in your own ways yeah. where you can clearly see the passion that's behind it. And I think the development of our community is a real testament to the work you guys are doing and the city staff are doing because it does things just get better in the community and we just all take that for granted. Like how well our parks and how well Vetter Road, um, the trails are looking. Yeah. We just all take it for granted and go, oh, this looks great, like perfect. Yeah. And, and we don't give credit to you guys. Well, and yeah, and on the flip side of that, we screw up. Yeah. We've made lots of stupid decisions for the right reasons, yeah. but things that haven't worked or have been um, really the wrong direction to go. I think a big part of being a good human being is admitting when you're wrong and saying, you know what, that didn't work, but we learned from it yeah. or that didn't work. I mean, city council is not infallible. We make mistakes and, you know, just like any other business, yeah. you know, if you're running the city like a business, you make mistakes. Fortunately, we have incredibly talented, knowledgeable people on staff backing us and you know and every once in a while they have to be weighed very carefully but they say things like well I'm pretty sure that you haven't considered that you know oh right okay <laughs> you know and then you realize okay that was probably wouldn't wouldn't have worked yeah but, you that, know that's awesome they save us 
quite often from ourselves. Well, we're very lucky to have them. I'm, <clears throat> I'm curious as to if there's any role models within this position that you've had the opportunity to learn from or work with or people who have kind of inspired your decisions in any sort of way, just because I think that you're in a unique seat when you're acting as city councillor and you're, you're playing this role in our community. And so it'd be interesting to see where you get your inspiration from. Well, probably I have a couple of role models as far as staff goes. Um, Karen Stanton is, uh, I don't know what her actual, I should have looked up her title, but, uh, she deals with a lot of the social issues. She's involved in the homelessness situation. She works with the government to try and bring us funding. She's lobbying for us. Uh, she is lovely, respectful. She, she lifts other women up at, at city hall. She's a mentor. Uh, she's going to be a Rotary president for the Chilliwack Mount GM Rotary Club. Um, you know, if there was still a woman of the year, they're not doing it anymore, too bad. But um, if there was a woman of the year, I would nominate her because I think uh, she is incredibly hardworking. She's a mom. She has these wonderful twin boys. She's a family person. Um, she's not too rigid or judgy about other people's beliefs. She's very, yeah, I definitely look up to her. Um, she's younger than I am. So, <laughs> so I look down and then I look up and say, wow, you know, you sort of, when you think of people that you look up to, it's quite often people who have come before you. Yeah. But she is, uh, yeah, she's amazing. And, you know, probably Carol Marlowe, who works with the Public Art uh, Committee uh, and uh, Parks and Rec, I think she's involved with. She does, you know, a lot of the different facility stuff throughout the city. So she does a really good job. And on the side of the guys, Glenn McPherson, who's Public Works, he runs all the crews. He makes all the plans for parks. He's very involved in trails. He is totally a visionary. He's a really great, hardworking guy. He gets his, his staff out there 24 hours a day when there's an emergency. They all love him because he's so respectful. And he's just a really super great guy and uh, very dedicated. So those would be the ones certainly at City Hall that I I probably the respect the most. That's awesome because these are the people who are making the plans, developing the community, yeah. supporting the people in all of their roles. And yeah. those are people we never we never hear from yeah. as community members when we attend like an all candidates meeting, these names never get mentioned. No. And so we don't get to know the the people underneath doing all that hard work. So yeah. that's so great. Can we move into the Chilliwack Hospice Society and okay. some of the other roles that you play oh. in our community? Okay. Well the Chilliwack Hospice Society is it's just the love of my life, I have to say. Um, it's, you know, most people think that the hospice society is Cascade Hospice, where people go at end of life. And that is it not, in fact, true. We don't own that building. We don't operate that building. Uh, it is owned by Sienna Senior Living, and it is funded by Fraser Health. But what we do for them is we provide all the volunteers. So we train them. We give them extensive training on how to relate to people how at end of life and you know um 
you know, it's 30 hours and then it's a bunch of extra hours, you know, for bedside and vigils and things like that. So we have a whole army of people that go in there and they sit with people and hold their hands and brush their hair and read to them. And uh, we have a relaxation therapy team that goes in and does Reiki with them. Or, you know, sometimes they just play music. You know, one of our staff, Lori, goes in there and she she was playing her guitar for them. Um, and we just really provide the comfort side of things. You know, the nursing and all that kind of stuff is handled by Fraser Health. And we don't do that. But we, you know, we bring them cookies and tea and, you know, all of our volunteers. And they're just so dedicated. That is not a job I could do. You know, I am such a marshmallow Anyone who has ever died in my life, I've completely lost my shit. Like I am just not sorry about that. No, no worries, no worries. <laughs> but yeah, I don't, I don't handle it well. I don't handle loss well. Yeah. And so, um, I couldn't do that job. But these people, I mean, they develop relationships. Some people are in there for three months. Some people are in there for ten days. Most people wait too long before they arrange for someone to go to hospice because they're trying to to look after them at home. And what I always say to people is, you know, when they ask me, when, you, when should you put someone into hospice care? And I say, you know what? When you know that they're really deteriorating and there's a lot of um, care that you have to give them, do you want at end of life to be the person who is changing someone's diapers and, um, look, you know, looking after their personal care and all of those things or do you want to be their spouse sitting there reminiscing about all the wonderful things that have been in your life talking about your kids and how much you love them and how much you love the life that you've had together um do you want the things that you remember to be the icky medical care kind of things or would you rather have a professional person do that so that so that you can have that quality time with them. Um, people are very hesitant, and some people don't want to go into hospice care, like the person themselves doesn't. Uh, they'd rather be cared for at home. But I think that's one thing that people don't consider enough, that the, re the memories that you have of that person and the time, the very valuable time at the end of life that you have with someone should be all about loving each other. And I think that's really, really important. So. Um, anyways, so what the hospice society mostly does uh, is that we look after people who are left behind. We look after people before they get so sick that they have to go into hospice care or that they're bedridden. So we deal with palliative patients and we deal with the bereaved. We deal with little kids, um, you know, four or five years old, say, you know, we, well, we deal with them from that age right up to 19 or 20. That's sort of our kids group. And, you know, kids will come in and they'll say, you know, maybe their dad has died. And, you know, they'll say, my mom cries all the time. And when my dad died, she stopped loving me. This is hard for me because it's, it's so, you know, it's just so devastating. And, and we help the kids understand that it's not that mommy doesn't love you anymore. It's that she's so sad and she just wants daddy back. And, you know, um, so when you don't deal with that stuff, then kids can all of a sudden sort of move away and, and, and 
it sets them on a path where they can get in trouble and act out and do stupid things and trying to get attention from the person that they really love. So, um, so I think that a lot of what we do with the kids group is we prevent those kids from making bad choices emotionally. And, you know, whether it be their relationship at home or not understanding or whatever, right? So, um, so that is very, very important work. But we also deal with the spouse that was left behind who has never had to balance the books or pay the bills or any of those things, or their entire world was around their spouse and we get them into groups with people who are going through the same thing and we teach them things like we have we have a whole educational section that does you know banking right now we're doing advanced care planning with people so that they can decide what they would want at end of life and you know it sounds so morbid but you should you can do it when you're 20 like if something were to happen to you so that your family doesn't have to make those decisions of when to take you off a ventilator and when to do all of these things and and what you would want a mine organ donor they don't want to make those decisions because there's so much guilt and remorse involved right so we help people make those plans so it makes it easy on families um you know we one of the stories i like to sort of talk about as far as hospice care is there you know the groups come in and you know at one time there was probably 20 people in a group and they would be anywhere from you know adult through senior senior right and they come through the door and they're broken and they're grieving and they're uncomfortable because they don't want to sit in a room full of strangers and talk about how they're feeling right um and they have they're carrying with them this jar of grief say you know, and it is just absolutely overflowing. And they were, we work with them for eight weeks and we get them talking and they talk about the guilt that they might have or the regret or uh, I wish I had done this or, you know, and they, they understand that dying is a part of living. And what you're feeling now is just really a product of loving someone, which is so great, right? And so when they leave... They have their jar, and in the bottom of the jar is the grief. And the grief is still there. The grief will always be there, and it will come in waves because that's the price of love. But the rest of the jar is open, and it's ready to accept love and joy and happiness and to be prepared to live on and to understand that you deserve to find new happiness. And so that's what we do. And, and it's, it's very emotional work, but it's also the most incredibly rewarding thing I've ever done. And, um, and my staff, like we have Lucy Fraser and Jen Baker, they're our two program people. We have not been able to replace our child and youth person at this point. So Jen and Lucy are picking that up for us bit by bit, but um, because of financial reasons, we can't, we've lost $190,000 this year because we can't have events and none of our programs we charge for, like everything we do is free. So, and like all the training we do is free, everything, right? So, um, anyways, um, but Jen and Lucy are the most amazing humans. And so we, we meet and Lori too, she does the education. So I mean, all of my staff, they're just so dedicated to this, but when it comes to Jen and Lucy right now, they're dealing with people that are not only suffering grief, 
but they're suffering grief at a time when the hospitals are shut down. So their husband or their child or, you know, their person had to die alone. And they weren't there to hold their hand or they weren't there to do this. And so there's that added thing. The other thing is that we are dealing with probably 20% more people who are coming back after five years or whatever, who have come to terms with their grief, but now their social network is all isolated from them. And it's it's all back again. If, you know, if he was still alive or she was still alive, I would have someone here with me. I wouldn't be so lonely. I wouldn't be feeling so alone. I wouldn't be so afraid. I wouldn't be this. I wouldn't be that. So, you know, it's really exasperated, exacerbated, I should say, the, uh, the amount of work that we have. So I'm really working very carefully to make sure that Jen and Lucy are doing enough self-care, like to take the time to walk away from it for a bit. And, you know, um, they both have strategies on what they do. Like Lucy loves to walk. She lives in Yarrow. She's like this crazy hippie. She's fabulous. She's wild. They used to call her the crazy cat lady in Yarrow, but she's just so interesting and she walks and she enjoys nature and, you know, and, um, and we talk every, like when we have our staff meeting, we all talk about what we're doing for self-care because this is a very difficult time to be involved with the hospice society. And then, of course, I have uh, Sandy Parker and uh, Stephanie and Susan who run our thrift store, which is the only real source of income we have coming in right now. And they're dealing with, you know, 100 volunteers that are all seniors and how do we keep them protected and the protocols that we have in place for keeping them safe. They all want to be there because they know that the money that they bring in is keeping us alive. Right. So, um, and we have all these crazy protocols and, you know, wipe, wipe, wipe. And, and, you know, they have face masks and they have, um, everybody wears face masks. There's nobody comes into our store without face masks. And, um, you know, they, they've also got the barriers at the front and in the, you know, the back we have wipes and spray and stuff everywhere. And so just trying to keep everybody safe because probably, I don't know, I'd say about 70% of our volunteers are over 70. And there are a lot of the people that, you know, have gone through our, and loved being involved with hospice and said, Hey, I'd love to volunteer for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. So that's so it's hard to get past because a community needs this. They need somewhere to go yeah. where they don't have to stress about payments after such a loss. Yeah. And they need someone who's going to be supportive and understanding and take the time to have the extra conversation before you go into a meeting who's not going to force them into anything. Yeah. And to have someone who has your passion is so important. And it's why I started this is because there are real people out there who want the best for us, who want the best for the community, who want the best for you when you're about like there are people who haven't lost the, their significant other yet, but they're going to, and they're going to enter your doors one day. Well, they may be with us already. Yes. In, the per in a perfect world, we go through the process with them. Yeah. And so that we're there to support them the whole way, not only them, but their person who's worried about how will they survive while they're after they're gone, yeah. right? So, you know, we provide all of those kinds of services. And yes, um, thank you, because uh, we're very, you know, we're not that well known. I mean, we've worked so hard to try and get the word out there. But, you know, when you say hosp 
Chilliwack Hospice Society, people think of Cascade Hospice. Yeah. And it's we're just so, so much more than that. Well, and I, th- I think that this is so valuable because people don't think about these things and they avoid it. And if you ask people, do you have a will? They don't want to talk about it. Like, yeah, I'm getting there and in a few years I'll have it all sorted out. And it's yeah. like, you won't because it's a topic everybody wants to avoid. And it's so difficult to get people to open <laughs> up on these types of issues yeah. because it's so easy for us to think that it won't happen to us. Mm-hmm. And when it does, everything will just fall into place. Like I know people who their plan is everything will just fall into place when I, when I pass. And it's like, it won't. People will focus on the wrong issues and will debate over things and have someone who's doing the job but like yeah they spend their whole lives protecting their family yeah but they don't protect them in the most important way which is all those horrible feelings that they have when there's issues and yeah and wills and things like that I mean we obviously don't get into wills and stuff like that but uh, I always say that you know I have chosen a path where I deal with the two most certain things in life death and taxes yeah (laughs) Well, and that's true, but you're also doing it with this passion and this kindness that people need in those moments. And all of your staff do better when they have a leader who actually cares and who actually like gets emotional at having to talk about it. Because if you were just like a stone cold, like, and we're just going to cut down the budget and we're just going to cut these things. And like, that's not what you need in those moments. You need someone who has hope and who's going to like understand where your volunteers are coming from and how hard that is. And trying to maintain morale during a time like this has got to be so difficult. And that's where our community is so lucky is because each time I look behind the curtain and find out the person leading it, it's someone who's doing it because they care. And we're so lucky to have that because I've, I've met people, I've worked at nonprofits where the person isn't that interested in the staff. And it's like, you can't do that because your staff gets discouraged and they're not as supportive when they're dealing with the client. If they don't think that anything's going to come of that, that means anything good for them or their self-esteem. And that's where we can run into those issues. So we're so lucky to have that. Can you tell us a little bit more about any anecdotal stories of working with people and seeing like a great volunteer or anything like that? Oh my goodness. Well, we have some... We have some wonderful volunteers, honestly. Uh, I would say Vicki Robinson is, uh, I'm probably not supposed to use her last name. <laughs> but anyways, uh, Vicki has been involved with a lot of the bedside stuff at Cascade Hospice. She also gets involved with the, the teen group. She also gets involved with um, the grief groups. Uh, she recently lost her own mother and, you know, was still there. Every day, you know, she's, we have so many great volunteers and so many of them have been with us for a number of years, but they're generally drawn to us because they've been through our services in some way. Um, and, and they think, wow, you know what, this was so helpful to me. I just want to give back to it. And then they get hooked on it. They get hooked on the, the, there is a great sense of, of personal healing and joy that comes out of making people happy again. You know, and or helping them know that being happy is okay. You know that that there is life after you lose someone, and it doesn't mean that you're being disloyal to them or or to the memory of them or whatever. But you need to you need to live on, and that's what they would want. So um, I don't know. I mean, it's really hard to say. We have you know probably 150 or 200 volunteers, and. I could probably spend all day talking about each and every one of them. Like they are, they all bring something different to the table. Uh, we have office volunteers that have regular shifts with us. So they're our receptionists. We don't have to pay a receptionist. We all our receptionists covered by volunteers. Um, 
when we used to have events, we'd probably have a hundred volunteers setting it all up, tearing it all down, getting, you know, all the auction items, getting the wine bottles, getting this, that, you know, like donations from people. Uh, there's just, it, it's, I mean, we are a volunteer organization, basically. We have, uh, let's see, how many, seven, I think we have six or seven staff, you know, I never remember, but at the, at the actual society, we have three staff at the store, and, you know, we sometimes, some days we see 2,000 people wow. in the store. I mean, we our store is 9,000 square feet. Yeah. Have you been there? No. <gasps> you have to go. It's so fabulous. And it's, you know, it's, it, there's a huge variety of stuff. Our prices are really, really cheap. And we keep it that way. The volume that goes through there makes us money and 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 we we love the fact that people get so excited about all the little treasures that they find and uh yeah i mean it's really great well i think that that's so awesome because specifically with like a role model i've always tried to to make the definition clear and it's somebody who's willing to face adversity and going in and supporting someone in that moment is not something anybody thinks they're capable of doing. And obviously you have volunteers who are willing to go in there and support people in an incredibly hard moment. To watch that moment occur is, yeah. is hard for people to comprehend. And to have volunteers who just do that, don't get paid, don't get any big banners put out in the middle of like town hall. Like It doesn't happen like that, but they're willing to do it. Because they care. They're very anonymous. Yes. Like nobody ever wants to take any credit for anything. Um, you know, once once or twice a year we have a volunteer appreciation. And this year actually we had planned to do like a gala kind of event. Because we have galas every year. But the, the volunteers are always working them. So we thought, why don't we have a volunteer gala? So everybody dresses up in long gowns and all the rest of it. And, you know, it won't. It, we'll use all of our leftover stuff from all our other galas. So the theme will be different per table or whatever and and um stuff like that and and yeah i mean they're just they're amazing that's just i love them i cannot imagine <laughs> running that because you're involved in the grief of chilliwack all the time like people who have to go through that that's what we you would go there for is to get support through those moments and that is such an important part of our society because a lot of us don't know how to deal with death and yeah. have nobody ever wants to talk about death no and they you know they say the hospital side oh Aren't those the the death people? <laughs> and it's like, well, yeah, but actually, I like to think of it as we're the rebirth kind of people. We're we're the I don't know. We're not the death people, and it's not you know, it's not necessarily all about death. It's all about love yeah. and living on. You that's, know, that's to me what it's what we do. That's what we do. That's awesome. Can you tell us how you got into that role? Well, as I have said, um, you know, I, I really, when my grandparents died, I was very close to my grandparents and they lived out here in Chilliwack and then they ended up going into Richmond to be close to my parents when they were really, really old. But, um, you know, I actually, I had to be sedated. I was, they died within, I don't know, three or four days of each other. They were 90 and 92 and they've been married since they were 15 and 17. Um, and you know, they, their little twin beds at this place, they, this care home they were in, they pushed them together so they could hold their hand, hold hands at night. My grandmother taught me how to, to bake and make pie crust. My grandfather brought puffed wheat to North America 
He, you know, the big bags of puff wheat, they used to come, come with a Dutch lady on the front of it. He brought that technology to North America. And he was like a fuller brush salesman. He went door to door as a salesman. And then he found out about this opportunity. They're trying to, you know, sell the patent or whatever it was. I'm not sure the business plan on this stuff. Brought it to North America and ended up like being a millionaire. He, you know, he did really, really well. And he was a business guy, but he was also kind of a, you know, he was a hunter and a hick. And he was, he was, a, <laughs> he had done orchards and carameas and all the rest of it. But anyways, when they died, I was terrible, like absolutely terrible. And then um, I had a friend when I worked at TELUS, uh, Kathy Buchatsky, I can use her name. And uh, we were best friends for, I don't know, 25 years and, um, and so close. And she had hepatitis C. And we worked in all the same departments over the years. Every time we went for a job improvement or a new management job, we both applied to the same area. So we stayed together. And we both worked at Mobility together. And she had hep C, which basically kills your liver. And at that time, there was nothing that you could really take to get rid of it. She was on interferon and a bunch of other drugs and... um, but, you know, and then she was on uh, the liver transplant list and, you know, it was hard to get her on the list or get them to agree to it. Um, but she was responding fairly well to the interferon and they don't like to give a liver to someone who's still sick, right? It's just like if you have uh, alcoholism and you're not prepared to stop drinking, they won't give you a new liver. They won't put you on the transplant list. So anyways, the they found a match for her. Um, it was, but it was a, like a living donor, I think. And, uh, but it was someone who, cause she had an odd blood type and she was in the hospital being prepped for that. And she got a blood infection and she died the night before that she was supposed to have the surgery. My gosh. And, uh, and I think that I probably had a full nervous breakdown with that one. Um, she was probably, I mean, I, you know, I was married and I, I married my husband in 1989. We stayed married for seven years. Then we got divorced for, uh, I don't know, four or five years. Then we got married again because I thought he kind of figured out what he was supposed to be doing as a dad. But, you know, he ended up not being what I wanted again. So then I divorced him again. So she was really <laughs> the longest term relationship I've ever had in my life. Um, very, very, very close. And she was probably the closest thing I've ever had to having really a long-term spouse. Right? That sounds weird, right? And her children used to say, I think you guys are lesbians. And we'd say, well, no, but it would sure be good if we could be. Because, I mean, it's like the perfect relationship. We were just inseparable, talked to each other every day. So when she died, I totally lost my mind. And um, and I didn't go to the hospice society. Um, I chose instead to be very kind of destructive and and, you know, it was it was bad for several months, you know, and I mean, I worked, I guess, still through that. I took a bunch of time off, um, but I I couldn't I couldn't talk about her without weeping. I couldn't I, I actually I still to this day can't actually drive to her house. Her I see her children and her ex or her ex-husband, her husband. Um, that was, I think, 12 years ago that she died. Uh, so it, it was right before I went on council. And. Um, anyways, yeah, I've never been able to drive to her house. 
like I become absolutely hysterical if I get anywhere in her neighborhood. It's the weirdest thing. Like, and so I know that I don't cope well with loss. And, uh, you know, uh, I volunteered quite a bit helping the hospice society with their events and things over the years. Um, and uh, I kind of thought that, you know, I sort of knew what they were all about. But when I first got the job, like I applied there because I, I love the organization. I love the work that they did. Um, and, you know, I love being involved with it. And I thought, what a great place to work. And people said, are you nuts? That's going to be like so depressing. And, you know, you're already kind of a marshmallow to begin with. So you're not going to be good at this. And I said, I said, yeah, no, no, I think it'll be fine. I think it's very positive, actually. And blah, blah, blah. And then I had to go through the training. You have to go through this 30 hours of training. And they talk, you, you, you talk about your experiences with grief. Well, you know, they had hired me at this point, thank goodness, because I was like a complete mess through the entire training. All I did was like sob every week for this thing. And the staff who are giving the training are thinking, this, this woman is like really off her marbles. Um, but anyway, it was really, really good for me because I think it was the, I had, I finally got to the point where I was actually dealing with it and, you know, what my triggers were and, you know, being okay with the fact that, you know, people die and babies are born and, you know, and it's the, it, it's the time we have together that matters. And the, you know, and all, and I have so many wonderful memories, but, you know, still probably, uh, she died on January 15th and her birthday was, uh, December 27th. And both days are very difficult for me every year. And yeah. And, you know, then of course I've lost my mom and dad since then. Um, my mom, I was, you know, obviously sad, but our relationship was a bit toxic. So it was not as hard for me, but my dad, you know, I mean, we, he taught me how to do plumbing and electrical and all this. And you can do anything a boy can do. And you're so smart and you're so this. And, you know, you've been, you, even though I was terrible in school, he says, you know, you've all been had your IQs tested. Yours was the highest, but don't say anything to your sisters. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. He was, and I fished with him all the time. I was like inseparable with my dad. So that was also a difficult one for me, but I dealt with it a lot better because I had been through this training. And so I think that sort of just really cemented my experience with hospice that like, this is such a perfect place for me, you know? And, you know, at, during that first, you know, 30 hours of training, I had my doubts. I thought, oh my gosh, am I ever going to be able to like actually function as a leader in this organization if I can't even get through this without being such a mess? Yeah. But it was good. It was like really, really good. And now I do lots of things to honor the people that I have loved. And um, yeah, so it's a great organization. That's awesome. Can you tell us about how somebody can, who's hearing this can support it? Because I think that it would be valuable just to lay out a few different options on how they can support such an important part of our community. Okay, well, they can donate directly uh, by calling us, which is 604-795-4660. You can send us a check. You can buy tickets to our 50-50 draw, which we're doing right now. It's all over social media. But you can also call our office and buy a ticket. Uh, this first one that we're doing, if we sell all the tickets, you will get $10,000 on December 18th, just in time for Christmas, if you're the winner. Uh, and we are planning to do another one uh, in the new year, which will be... 100,000. 
So, yeah, so it'll be 50-50, so they get $50,000. That's amazing. Yeah, so, you know, we're trying to sort of pivot the way that we we do um, that we do fundraising. We're not going to have our gala. We're not going to have our hoedown virtually because our brand on those events is so fabulous. Like, those events are so much fun. They're, like, the gala, for example, is glitzy. It's gorgeous. It's like being in a movie set. It's always completely done to the nines. And our our uh, volunteers love to do it, right? We didn't want to try and do something virtually because you kind of, you know, it's just not the the same feeling, right? And then, you know, and then when you go back to being able to do it live, which we're hoping we will at some point, um, then it's kind of lost its sizzle, yeah. right? So we're just not going to touch those events and we're trying to do other things to kind of bring the money in. So yes, you can donate directly to us. I mean, they can go to our website. That's really easy. If you just put in Chilliwack Hospice Society, it'll bring it up. Um, you know, you can go to our store, which is on Evans. If you want to donate money, if you give it to them there, um, if you would like to volunteer for us, we need a few more volunteers at the store because some of our, because the COVID numbers are going up again, some of our older, really senior uh, volunteers are going to take, are stepping back for a little while. We're worried about them and we don't want to put them, like, even though we're super, super, super careful, you know, they're the most vulnerable, so we're kind of trying to protect them. So we're trying to bring in some younger volunteers, but they can't be in high school because we don't want them right now <laughs> just because of, you know, all the outbreaks in school because we have to protect the other seniors that are still there. So, yeah, it's a real, but, yeah, volunteering for us is always great. Um, you know, businesses, another thing we thought about is, you know, for all those businesses out there that can't have Christmas parties, if you wanted to, like, donate the amount of money it would have cost you for your Christmas party or maybe get your staff involved with donating to the hospice society. It's so horrible having to ask people for money. That's the part I I like least about this job. Fair enough. Can you tell us about what the money goes towards uh, just so people maybe it'll feel less guilty? Yeah. So uh, it goes towards all our grief programs. So we, right now we are offering a traumatic loss group that's coming up, which is uh, people who have died from overdose accident, murder, suicide, uh, and car accidents. Um, so, you know, and it, I mean, we're not that prescriptive about it. If someone says, well, it was very traumatic for me, that's good enough, really. And then, you know, we offer, we are also having our regular first step grief group. Um, we are doing a pregnancy and infant loss grief group for moms and dads who have lost babies at any point throughout the term. Um, what else are we doing? Oh, we, every week we send kids to uh, to this horse camp in Freedom Reigns in Yarrow, and we have sort of a partnership with her. So we send about five, six kids there. They ride horses. They interact and talk to the horses about the things that, and they they work. They understand sort of the grief process. So they work with us on that. Uh, once a year, we do a. Uh, horse whisperer camp with kids which is a whole day grief group for kids uh, we are trying to bring on another um, child and youth person so that we can we can do a lot more focus work with kids because that they're the ones that are really getting missed out right now and we're worried about that because um, we see 
you know, the kids, they act out at school. They're already feeling like so many kids who have lost parents or grandparents during this time period are afraid that everyone in their life is going to die because of COVID and they hear all this stuff, right? So they understand what how death feels, maybe for the first time in their lives, you know, that they've lost someone. And then all of a sudden, you know, right now they're really struggling and we're getting a lot more call from parents and schools and things like that, that these kids are really struggling because they think now that everyone's going to die because of COVID, right? So, um, so anyways, though, you know, we're trying to bring in, we're trying to hire someone for that job, but we just don't have the budget to do it at this time. So Jen and Lucy are sort of picking that up at this point. So they, you know, any kind of donations that we get towards that would really support bringing a new person on. Um, eventually we'll be able to do a lot more fundraising and eventually we'll get smarter on how to do it virtually. It's just, you know, you, you try and figure out what works, what isn't working, we look at all the other sort of community organizations who are wealthier than us, perhaps, and what they're trying and what's working for them and what isn't, because we can't really afford to have a fail. Yeah. We, so we're kind of trying to check out what everybody else is doing. But uh, we have a great board uh, and we've got a fundraising committee on the board. So we're, you know, working on new ideas for that. But anyways, I think I went on and on about that. No, Sorry. that's that's so important because I do think that it's a resource that if we don't support it, we could lose it. And I think that we need to do everything we can to try and make sure that that doesn't happen. Yeah, well, I'm not going to let that happen. Awesome. Well, I'm <laughs> glad that we have someone on that front to protect that. Can you tell us about what it was like to work with the Rotary Club? Because I think everybody sees signs about Rotary Clubs, mm -hmm. but I don't think that we understand how it works or the value of it. Okay, well, there's three Rotary Clubs in Chilliwack. One meets on Friday. It's uh, the Rotary Club of Chilliwack. Uh, they are uh, probably, they used to be the largest group. They have lost a number of members over the last few years, and they're probably the most senior group. That's the group that I currently belong to, which I love. I have to say that I have, my husband is 21 years older than me, so clearly I like seniors. So, <laughs> Anyway, but this, and he was also in my Rotary Club. But um, anyways, and then there's the Thursday, which is the Chilliwack Mount Sheehan Rotary Club. They meet at 7 o'clock in the morning. That's the one I was the president of, and that's where I first started in Rotary. But I am so horrible in the morning. Like, I am not a good morning person. So once, um, once my tenure as president was over, um, I moved to the Friday Club because they meet at Friday at lunch, which is a great way to end the week, right? And um, and not only that, but I have a lot of really early morning meetings for City Hall already. And, you know, if I have to be in a meeting at seven, then I have to get up at five and like, you know, hit my head with a two by four because I am just not good in the morning. I never have been. I would stay up until two in the morning every night if I could, but I don't want to get up until 9.30. I mean, I obviously get up earlier than that now, but um, anyways, and then the Wednesday Club also meets at lunch, um, and they are the Chilliwack Fraser Rotary Club, and all of the different clubs pick a project every year um, in order to, you know, the, they fundraise, and they inject money into the community, and like they've done the Rotary Trail, they've done that park down the Central Park downtown, that water park thing, they did that. Um, you know, they partner with the city, the city brings some money in, the Rotary Club brings some money in. The Rotary Clubs, you know, um, they kind of stick handle uh, the volunteers to do a lot of the work and things like that. Currently, the Thursday Morning Club that I used to be the president of is actually building a beautiful garden space for the Chilliwack Hospice Society. We were chosen as their 
project for this year. And we had this horrible area with paving stones that were kids were tripping on and stuff. And I was worried we were going to lose a tooth and, you know, and uh, they have completely redeveloped it. They're this coming Tuesday, actually, they're planting it. Uh, Brian Minter has also assisted them by giving, um, you know, a really great deal on the plants so we can double up on some of it. And that's going to be their project for the year. And, uh, you know, I think they do great things in the community. They are also suffering in these times, but they're, you know, I mean, the Friday Club had their book sale recently, and I think they managed to do quite well. I didn't go to that because I'm around so many seniors, I was worried that I'd pick something up that I might pass on. So I'm very careful about the things that I'm attending these days. But um, anyway, I mean, Rotary Clubs do amazing things. They also have pretty much eradicated polio all over the world. So a part of what they fundraise and the dues and all the rest of it, it goes overseas and a part of it stays. So um, they, along with Bill Gates, actually, have been working to eradicate polio. And so they're down to like hardly any cases in the world. And they've been doing that, I think, for 20 years now, trying to stop polio. Uh, they also do things like they build wells in Africa. That was one of our projects from the Friday Club. They, um, you know, different clubs choose different things to put their money towards. And then Rotary International, which is one of the places where you send your money, they also have projects that they do uh, to try and make the world a better place. That's and so important. It is important. It's really, really great work. Oh, and that's awesome. And then, um, yeah, so that's probably enough. Wow. So being the president, what type of involvement do you have? Are you guiding some of the yeah, decisions? You, well, when I was, my year as president, we did, I think we did Watson Glen Park, from what I remember. And, you know, you, you go with the executive and they sort of, they put forward ideas on projects. How much money do you have? How much money do we have coming in this year? What can we afford to do? And uh, we worked on Watson Glen Park, and it was supposed to be sort of an interpretive thing with plantings from different parts of Canada, from what I remember. <laughs> Anyways, I mean, it's kind of, that's fallen by the wayside a little bit at this point. But, you know, as a, a Rotary president, um, you run the meetings, you arrange for all the executive stuff. It's a, it's a big job. It's certainly a much bigger job for the bigger clubs, like the Friday Club, if you were president and there's 200 members, and the Thursday Club, there's, I don't know, about 80, I think, right? So the more members you have, the more work it is, um, but you arrange for the meetings, you, you know, you, anytime, any organization I've ever worked with, if you want to be successful, if you're the president, you're just another member of the team or if you're the executive director you're another member of the team like everybody works as a team to decide what your project's going to be if you have like a pet project that you've always wanted to do in the community then you can come and pitch it but if they don't pick it you know you don't take your your toys and go home i mean you you know it's so it's a very collaborative kind of thing to make sure that you're always doing the right thing right yeah. you know so um the Rotary Clubs, very, you know, act very much that way. So the, but the, the president is kind of the leader and the go-to person and the, you know, the complaints department quite oh, often. Oh, perfect. <laughs> well, I'm sure that was enjoyable. Yeah. What was it like to be a part of the Seroptimist Club? Because I didn't even know that was a thing prior to reading your bio and learning about that. And so I think that that would be great to talk about. It would be. Okay, so the Seroptimus Club is a very similar structure to the Rotary Club. There's Seroptimus International, there's 
Seroptimus Western Canada, there's Seroptimus in all the different areas. And Seroptimus means best for women. Not maybe not exactly the perfect quote, but I think. Anyways, it's but it's basically a group, it's all women. It's a group of women. We do things like locally, our Seroptimus Club has something that's called Heather's Hope Chest. And we have received donations and we raise money and we do all this kind of stuff. We have a couple of storage lockers in a hidden place in Chilliwack. And we take referrals from all the social service agencies for women who are aging out of care, are escaping abusive relationships, who are basically just trying to get set up and then and we arrange for a time they come and they shop for free they get bed bedding dishes everything to get them set up and it's all in this little warehouse place and they just pick and choose what they want and we take it on a dolly and load the car they usually come with their social worker or someone and uh, and then they go off and they have all this new stuff for their apartment so that's one project that we do. We also provide bursaries for women who have dependent children that want to want to go back to school. So, um, you know, it's not a whole ton of money. I think it's about like, say we had $5,000 put away for it because it's different every year, but the, the, the number one choice would get 3000 and then there'd be two runners up. We also have a believe and achieve award, uh, which is for a woman who, may not have dependent children but is because the the that particular one that's sort of sponsored by Rotary International is for um we put the money in but it's for women who have dependent children the other one is for a woman that maybe doesn't have dependent children but maybe she has overcome drug addiction or she's you know it's very subjective and it's our own one that we created in our club because we said we don't just want women who have children. That's not necessarily fair. Women who don't have children also have struggles. So we put together our own one for that. So, and um, I'm on the executive for uh, the Seroptimus the Club. Uh, there's not very many of us. I think there's like somewhere 22 to 25 of us or whatever. And, you know, we're having struggles these days trying to keep it together because we're meeting on Zoom and there's not the, you know, the connection with the other members. So we're trying to figure out ways to keep it sort of together till all of this is over. Um, but, you know, we used to do things to make money like we would we would go to Heritage Park during the fair and manage the parking lot and stuff like that. Like we don't, we're not really on the radar of most people, but honestly, they do some really, really great stuff. And like internationally, this is probably gross, but in a lot of countries, um, women are mutilated. They are, their uh, private parts are, have all the stuff that makes it feel good removed yeah. and for the use of men. So they, you know, won't stray or whatever the, theory is so we protect those women we sneak them out of the country and we do all sorts of that's Seroptimus International I'm not personally involved with any kind of border 
crossing stuff, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank goodness. But that's one of the things they do. They rescue women in situations where they're trying to escape abuse and rape and all sorts of stuff. That's what Soroptimus International does. Well, that's so important because it's a, one of those <laughs> topics we never talk about. And when we hear about it, it seems so crazy that it's possible. And so to know that there is somewhere in Chilliwack that actually helps support the international work there is so valuable for us as a community to obviously make a stance against that type of behavior yeah we send them money and they use our money to help with their cause and yeah yeah Yeah, it's good that's a terrific and you know what i don't think anything's impossible if if the world could have elected donald trump as president anything is possible in the world yeah well and eradicating (laughs) polio on the other end of things that's a really cool thing that the other side is yeah yeah So moving forward, can we talk a little bit about your family and what that's been like for you? Because I think that that's so important that that is the tool that I think people use to go out and do well in their career, do well in the community, is they have to go home to a place that they feel comfortable, heard, and valued. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, (laughs) this is kind of, I think that, you know, probably growing up and being bullied and having low self-esteem. I mean, people always say, oh, you're like the most confident person. Well, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm just really good at faking it. And, you know, if it's something I really believe in, then I can be passionate about it. But um, I, you know, my growing up family, I mean, I talked about that a little bit. My, I had two sisters as well. I have a younger sister and older sister. The older sister I'm completely estranged from and, that's never going to change. So, um, but, uh, you know, for the most part, it was good. I, you know, we weren't poor. I didn't starve, you know, it was a, a great life. And, and I met my husband, uh, in the Greek islands. Uh, he was traveling all over the world. We got married in 1989 when they wouldn't renew his visa. He came to Canada to see me. It was funny too, cause I didn't even recognize him. When I saw him in the Greek islands, he had like this long blonde curly hair and he was like so tanned and, you know, we had spent a couple months together. And then he came to Canada and he'd had his hair cut. And his hair was, like, dark underneath because he hadn't been in the sun. He'd been living in England. And uh, anyway, so he came. He was here for nine months. And we eventually got married. And we had two beautiful daughters together. And uh, he has great genes. My daughters are gorgeous and tall and whatever, although they're, you know, they have the the curvy gene from mom, <laughs> but they're uh, amazing, absolutely amazing. And we were married, I guess, for six or seven years, and then we divorced. And then I moved to Chilliwack, and then uh, I had, like, kind of a scare with cancer. And then he was kind of hanging around helping with the kids and stuff, and I don't know what happened, but, you know, I figured he'd sort of figured his, his life out and all the rest of it. So we got back together, and we actually got married again. Because my daughters wanted to be flower girls. It was probably the, the biggest reason for that. <laughs> well, if you and daddy are back together, we want to be flower girls. So anyway, uh, but that didn't last very long. And so we ended up divorcing again. Um, my daughters ended up with me. Uh, and uh, And I've lived... I think at one point I had moved like seven times in seven years in Chilliwack because I rented and I didn't do well financially in the divorce, um, even though, you know, I was the one that actually originally owned. It doesn't matter. I shouldn't even go there. But anyways, okay, we won't go there. But 
Uh, you know, it was, I struggled. I rented for several years, which always makes me laugh when people come up in front of council and they say, well, we don't want this development because there will be renters. And it's like, well, I rented for many years, so already you're kind of not... Barking up the right tree. Yeah, you're barking up the wrong tree here. Anyway, um, but my girls learned early. Like, I, I was lucky when I first came to Chilliwack. I was making a lot of money at the telephone company at the time. And so I had a full-time live-in nanny and she uh, was amazing. Uh, and she was cheaper than two kids in daycare. Wow. To have her. She came from the Philippines um, and she was so awesome. And she would cook and clean and um, give the kids their baths and like all that kind of stuff. So all I had to do was come home and like be with my kids and have a relationship with my kids, which was so amazing. I loved it. And I, you know, I'd go to my upstairs to my room and I'd pull out my drawer and all my underwear and my t-shirts were like in these perfect little folded rolled up balls. And, you know, everything was perfect. And her name was Harlan and she was amazing. Um, but once your kids go to school, obviously you don't qualify for the same ability to have a live-in full-time nanny. But my kids became really independent really early, I must say. You cook for yourself, like they would open the fridge and say, there's nothing in here to eat. And I'd say, well, there's, you know, you know how to cook. Like they learned how to cook at a really early age. And as when they were old enough, like they had babysitters, but when they were old enough to stay on their own, you know, they were expected. I don't think I ever once made them lunch. That's terrible, right? To send to school. But, you know, everything they needed was there. And they they're very independent women now. And, and so that's both good and bad because maybe they felt like they were a little bit abandoned. Um, I was incredibly protective of my kids, uh, when they were little, particularly Melody had a bit of a problem, uh, when, when she was, oh, was in grade one, I think, or grade two, I can't remember. She was at one of the local elementary schools, I won't say, because this boy was really bullying her, like really bullying her. And for the same reason, because she was a little bit chunky and he was bugging her. And so I called the school and I made this huge stink. And then I went there and I said, I want this kid dealt with. I want to talk to his parents, blah, blah, blah. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, nothing ever happened. So I have to say I'm ashamed of this before I tell you what okay. I did. So I went to the school one day and Melody was there and I said, okay, which kid is it? And she said, you know, it's that kid over there, right? And I could see he was kind of pushing the other kids around and obviously clearly the bully, right? So I wait for a little bit and I call him over to the fence. And I said, you see that girl over there? And he's like, oh yeah, fat Melody. And I said, <laughs> lippy little thing. And I said, if you ever, ever, say one more mean thing to her ever again, and I find out about it, I'm coming to get you. And I said, and you won't like that. Like, I don't care what kind of trouble I get in. You're in big trouble, buddy. And, I, and you, you know, and he was a little bit, I don't know exactly how I, I was probably worse than I think there might even be a couple of swear words in there. But anyways, <laughs> yeah, it was bad. <laughs> I could have been arrested for that, but... So anyway, after that, he was good to her. That's good. Well, that's so important, though. Like, people, no, it's can, wrong. No, you but, should deal with it through the proper avenues. I realize it's wrong, but honestly, 
I, because of the fact that happened so badly to me and my mother never did anything, there was no way that was going to happen to my kids. So, but like, I even think as like a kid, you want some, like I went through something similar and it didn't go at all my way. Um, I was bullied and the bullier was, had held a knife to me. He had, (gasps) he had threatened me at the leisure center when I was just swimming. He was like, once we're done swimming, we're going to take you outside and we're going to be everything out of you and if you go tell those lifeguards we're just going to do it after you leave and after they've if they kick us out we're just going to do it after that and so I didn't feel like I had options and then I had told my mom and we were walking down the road with her like my mom and then my friend and their mom and he was riding by and like my mom was like you're not going to do that again to my child and he mooned us on his skateboard and then just went away and continued to threaten me and like nothing was ever fixed so knowing that somebody's on your side through all of it is like that's what you want in your life like i get that there's legal ramifications but in your life you want someone who's gonna be there no matter what they're not going to go well we really can't do that because of all these very rational reasons you want someone who's like you know what screw all of that i care about you and i've got your back and we're ride (laughs) or die and that's that's what that offers people and i i think going too far and saying like let's all just be super rational we can lose that they do lose it but i just want people to know that i don't condone threatening children but uh yeah so anyway um and as they grew up melody became a lot you know she was very uh she's like me she's a free spirit she was just she didn't like school she was totally like me and then my other daughter you know uh i'd say okay i'm taking you guys out of school so that we can go where were we going cancun we're going to cancun for with auntie debbie for you know a week and Haley says, well, what? when are we going? And I said, this day. She says, well, I can't go. I'm still in school. I can't miss school. And she was just so totally different than me. Like, she was like my sisters, you know, love school. So anyways, I have these two really amazing, totally opposite daughters. I have one that's incredibly, uh, she lives in Vancouver with her significant other. She's very much into art and culture and expressing herself and just trying everything under the sun and I you know I worry more about her because you know she's she's like I was I could have been killed so many times with all the stupid decisions I made over the years but I was lucky and then I have another daughter who's married and uh, she owns a business which is Valley Pro Orthotics and it's on Vetter anyways and she's incredibly hardworking and not that they're not both hardworking but she's very logical yeah. very lo- but still very much fun anyway so they turned out great and um and i my ex-husband now is gone from Chilliwack area and i had married i guess last year a little while ago year and a half i guess yeah norm not who has been a really really wonderful friend of mine for many many years and uh, he is older than me, but we have the most amazing relationship. And, you know, for the first time in my life, I feel like I have unconditional love, which is amazing. That is awesome. Can yeah. you tell us how you guys met? Well, he was he was in my Rotary Club. and He was in the Friday Rotary Club. And I had met him even when I was in the Thursday Rotary Club. And, you know, he was married to someone else and I was in other relationships. I did do a fair amount of dating over the years. I have to be truthful about that. But um, so I was seeing someone but he and he was married to someone else. They laugh because they both of us have been married three times. 
for both of us, this is our third marriage. But he actually married two different women, and I married the same guy twice. Yeah. So as far as I'm concerned, that doesn't actually count. But uh, he is an amazing guy, and he has um, just a heart of gold. And the most important thing I think that we have in common is, like, family is everything. Like, you know, I would protect my children till the ends of the earth, and he's like that too. He has, there's six kids I think there's 17 grandchildren and 18 great-grandchildren. Oh, my gosh. I know. So, like, a family event, we can't have family events right now because it's, like, way over the limit. But I think the first one I ever went to, there was, like, 43 immediate family members there. Oh, like, my gosh. I can't imagine what a non-immediate family <laughs> get-together would look like. Yeah. and But we live on a farm, which is great. And, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. This is the happiest I've ever been in my entire life. And I am just very, and it, it's been, you know, I mean, it's been a tough go because we got engaged and then. How did, that, how did that happen? <laughs> well, we had been dating for a while and then we were going out on a Friday night and I came home with my friend Danielle and, you know, I said, oh, Danielle wants to catch a ride with us. We're going over to this thing. And, and then he like gets down on one knee and proposes and Danielle's going, well, she had a few words to say that I won't repeat, but what are you doing? <laughs> you know, and she's, and I'm like, you know, go outside or something, you know, because it was like kind of one of those private moments. But anyways, yeah, we got engaged and uh, then we got married on April 20th, which is the pot day. We didn't even <laughs> think about that, but we got married on pot day in 2019. Yeah. And we just had our one year anniversary, but you know, um, we got engaged, I guess in October and then Christmas Eve, I found out I had breast cancer. Oh no. Yeah. T big, what big, happened? Well, <laughs> it was, uh, and I can remember saying to one of his daughters, like, he did not sign up for this. Like, this is, you know, I don't know whether I would have gone down this whole road of getting married and all the rest of it if I had known, right? Well, um, I had I had surgery on February 12th of that year. Sorry, what was the diagnosis? Like, what was that process like? Oh, it was awful. It was absolutely, I found out on Christmas Eve and I'm like, my doctor said, I hate to do this on Christmas Eve, but, you know, you need to know this. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, and, and it was very emotional. And I think that's probably the most scared I've ever been in my entire life because, you know, my life is just so wonderful right now. And then, you know, some bird flew over and took a big shit on it. Yeah. Pardon me. Yeah, no but, uh, yeah. And so uh, in, I guess in January, I don't know, I had, I mean, I can't remember if I'd had the biopsy before that or the biopsy came in January. And then um, by February 12th, I had surgery and they took out two big tumors. And then... Um, they leave you to sort of heal up a little bit and then, uh, you go back to the doctor and they tell you what to, like what you should, what kind of treatment you need to have. And they told me I needed to have chemo and radiation. And I said, well, you know, if I had chemo, you know, what are the chances? And they said, well, that would give you a 1% better chance of being alive in 10 years if you have chemo and the radiation, gave me way more than that plus the fact that they had re, you know removed it and all the rest of it so I was up to like a I don't know 85% chance I'd be alive in 10 years and it was going to give me 86% if I had chemo yeah. and I said so no chemo I won't be doing chemo uh, which I may end up regretting 
one day. But anyways, so I went and had radiation, and you have to do that every day for, except for weekends, for 30 sessions in a row. It's exhausting, unbelievably exhausting. And um, and it burns your skin to the point where it gets to be like hamburger meat. It's really gross. And, you know, when you're done with it, everything sort of looks normal. And then within about six months, all that skin that's been radiated contracts and becomes hard as a rock. And the thing on, you know, the left side of your body that you used to know is look, look like a normal boob now is kind of just shriveled up into this horrible nastiness. So, I mean, that's what you're left with. And then now I go for mammograms every six months and ultrasounds. I just had one a little while ago and now I have to go for an ultrasound because they see all sorts of things because the, you know, they just do. So now I need follow-up. So I don't know whether I'm done with it or whether I'm not. Every night when you go to bed, in the beginning particularly, it's the last thing you think about and it's probably the first thing you think about when you wake up. Wow, I, I cannot imagine. Yeah, so that has been my first year of marriage. And so we went through all that. Plus, we did a renovation on the house, and we're still together. So I think we're solid. Yeah, it sounds like you've been through a lot together yeah, already. We, yeah, I think we're solid. So, um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I kind of live in fear. I'm not a, not a grandma yet for my own kids. Um, I've spent so much of my life working two jobs and sort of doing things for other people. I've sort of come to the point now, like, I, I mean, this isn't news. Most people know this anyways, but I, I won't be running for council again. Yeah. After 14 years, I've, I've decided that, you know, if I have five years of life left, who knows, right? Yeah. Then I want to spend that time with my kids and my husband. I want to do a little traveling if I can, once they allow travel again. Um, you know, it'll be the first time in 40 years that I haven't worked two jobs. Yeah. Wow. You know, right? So we are, we're just so lucky to have you here and doing the work that you're doing. Like that's just, that just speaks to everything that you've done for our community and all the work and all the meetings and all the times that we haven't been able to thank you for that, that we're, we're so lucky to have you to choose to continue to have viewed this as like your service to the community. Like Mm. some people never look at the world as if they could do something for somebody else and you've devoted most of your life to trying to support your children to support your community to support your family to try and help everybody else do better and i just think that that's that's such a great part of the story but i'm certainly not perfect yes no i'm definitely not (laughs) trying to push anyone's perfect Uh, you know i have my issues i smoked for 40 years i got in lots of trouble i you know i used to i worked at one time as a go-go dancer for a band and, you know, another time pumping gas at, at uh, Killer's Cove Marina. I mean, I've done, you know, I've done, everything I've done has been a great experience for me too. Yeah. You I, know, I'm not that, nobody is that perfect that they, you know, are so altruistic yeah. uh, the world. But honestly, uh, no, it's been a good ride. But I want to spend, you know, and I also think the fact too, you know, my husband's older. And, you know, I was lucky enough to kind of have this opportunity with him quite a bit later in life, but I want to have as much time as I can with him. And his family has been very accepting of me. They're really wonderful. And, you know, some of them, of course, I know because most of his children are my age. So it's, uh, you know, 
Yeah. <laughs> One of his daughters was a good friend of mine for many years. So yeah, it's a bit it's a bit of a weird dy- dynamic, but we all seem to be getting along great. So that's good. Well, that's awesome. Can you tell us about some of your places, favorite places in Chilliwack? Some places you like oh, to eat or yes. some people that you work with that you've enjoyed I mean, being I, around? Yes, I don't I want to make sure I don't miss anybody because I did kind of put together a list of people that Okay, so these are my favorite businesses. The Button Box genie and uh i i've just always loved that place because it's it's i think it's extremely well shopped for like she has little things and expensive things she has some very you know some fairly expensive things in there she's got some beautiful things for babies i used to buy all my hats there because i love hats i wear a lot of hats in the winter time and i have hats galore i have a lot of shoes too which i used to buy at the other store next door but uh, so I love the button box. I also love Cornerstone Framing because it's my friend Krista Butt and she is such an amazing human being and makes me laugh all the time and she does exceptional work. And of course I do a lot of framing because I, you know, I mean I paint, I'm a watercolor painter, I do acrylics, I do like all, I do all sorts of art projects and things and, you know, so I've worked with her a bit on that and she is awesome. Minder Country Gardens has been a huge supporter for the Hospice Society and for this most recent project that we've been working on. And I think Brian Minter is probably the hardest working person I know. Um, I'm I'm hoping to have him on. Oh, you would be so... He's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You won't get him for three hours, though. I guarantee you he's on a schedule. Um, Frankie's and Earl's, Raphael Aiello, he has... I want to say... First of all, I, I love Earl's. I used to hang in out there all the time, actually, way too much. I usually had to go home in a cab. And uh, always we had lots and lots of fun there over the years. But uh, he is so generous to community organizations, and he doesn't like any kind of recognition for it. Like, he doesn't talk about it a lot. He's He's just really, really awesome. He supports all sorts of community organizations, including the Hospice Society, and he is just a great guy. Uh, Kelmore is another one, the Kirknesses. Um, they also don't like to get a lot of recognition, and hopefully they won't be mad that I've mentioned them, but they have really helped out the Hospice Society and uh, have done, I mean, they've given us river rocks. We did a beautiful garden with flowers in it, and uh, that was from Kelmore. He's, they've also got other businesses, Western Explosives, and um, they have been financially supportive of the Hospice Society, uh, emotionally supportive when we've had difficult times and things like that with suggestions and things, and they're just awesome. Okay, and also uh, Emil Anderson and um, Jerry Ann's Contracting. Um, they're very community supportive. And uh, that would be, you know, Jerry Ends and, of course, I won't be able to remember his name now that I'm trying to do it. The guy, oh, I can't remember. Anyway, it doesn't matter, but he's the guy who owns it. Uh, they're amazing. Um, home Hardware is the last one on my list, and that's Jeff Fortin, who is, like, the sweetest guy. Have you ever met him? No. Oh, he is, like, such a nice community guy. He is helpful to everyone. He used to get really involved in the car show, but he's also done things to help hospice, and they've supported us. But more, I think, when I've been going through difficult times running into him on the street, and, I mean, when I got my breast cancer, I actually put it in the paper. Because I thought, people are going to say, you know, because of all the trolls and all that kind of stuff, oh, yeah, she's in rehab. 
or, you know, she's in the, you know, and I thought, I don't want that. I just want to get out in front of it. I'm just going to be totally awesome and honest about it and say, you know what, I'm scared to death, but this is what's going on in my life. And, and so if I'm missing from action for a while, that's why. And, you know, he would be the first one to say, hey, I read, I read about you in the paper. How you doing? You know, and just a super, super nice guy. So if you can give your business to them, I would say you're dealing with a great person and a great family. Yes, Len had mentioned him from the Royal Hotel. And oh, really? Yeah. Trying to get the piano out and operating. And I guess Fortin's and Home Hardware really supported that. Yeah, they're just decent. Yeah. Where decent do you, people. Where do you like to eat in Chilliwack? Where do I like to eat? Well, I like to eat at home these days because yeah. my husband cooks for me. But... uh I mean, I love Earl's. I like Frankie's. Um, not as much because uh, I try and stay away from the carbs and there's lots of pasta there, but they do have obviously other things. Uh, where do I, oh, Hannah Sushi. I love sushi. I also love um, Tokyo Grill, which is now in the Royal Hotel. Yes. Love that place. Love it. Uh, and the lady who runs it, I forgot. I think her name is Margaret or something. Anyway, uh, super, super sweet. And she really loves my oldest daughter, which, of course, anybody who loves my children gets like two extra points. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about <laughs> a bit more about the uh, orthotics work that your daughter does? Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Haley uh, graduated from university and um, she has social degree of some sort. I've forgotten what it's called. Of course, not being a person that really loves school that much. Um, anyways, she uh, started working there. And then the person who owned it decided that, you know, they want to get out of the business. So she went uh, online and she did all this training to be a authoritist. And then, I hope I'm saying that right. And then she went down to Oklahoma uh, to a place in, uh, down there where they you had to do like two weeks or three weeks of actual practicum stuff. And then there's all this different, she goes through all this different licenses. She got her license to be, uh, to make orthotics and to to look at people's feet and and her husband is doing like knee braces and I think they're going to get into foot care coming up in the next little while too but um yeah they're a young couple uh she's <laughs> she's totally into customer service and uh, very very sweet my daughter Haley and loving where so, did where did the passion come from for working with people's feet because obviously we I don't think there's this. any passion I think she, you know Haley is very she is very logical about things and you know this opportunity to own a business and you know she doesn't mind people so she used to rub my feet all the time for me so she's never really hated feet yeah and you know she found out how she would have to become licensed and she thought it was interesting and you know I don't think she I think she has a passion for customer service and, and doing a really good job. But So I think she would have succeeded in any business that she went into. But this just so happened to be the thing. And now she like really loves it. So I don't know whether that answers your question. I mean, I think she has a passion for it now. But I don't think she woke up one morning and said, I want to look after people's feet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's not too many of us that, you know, yeah, so wait, go directly to feet. Yeah, that's fair. But uh, yeah. No, she's like really good at it. And yeah, that's awesome. So I think the best way to end this off is to get your idea on some of your favorite artists, because I think that the oh. value in that is that we wake people up to some of the local art, but maybe just some artists that you've really enjoyed. Okay. Well, uh, Cassandra Unger 
is Eldon Unger's daughter. Have you ever heard, if you heard of Eldon? He used to be quite a mover and shaker in town. And I went to a uh, showing that she had one time, and I just love her stuff. And you can look it up. It's Chrysanda, Chris, Chrysandra Unger. And it used to be Newsteader, but she, I guess, divorced, and now she's gone back to Unger. So I have a, several of her pieces in my house. So she's one of my favorites. Um, I really love Monet. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I really love all different kinds of art, but I'm, it's kind of like, if you came into my house, you would say, oh my gosh, color threw up in here. Like I love colorful, bright things in what I wear and in the art that I pick. And so I, I tend to pick artists that are really colorful. I like the group of seven artists, but um, there's also an artist out in the Cultus Lake area, and I've forgotten who they are. Um, Jackie Simpson used to carry a lot of this person's work in her studio, but I can't, I can't remember what the name is. But I don't know. I mean, I just love all sorts of things that are crazy and funky. If you want, I'll send you some pictures of some of the stuff that, um, like I do things like I took an old, they call it a gin, gin cupboard. And it's, and that to me is art too, right? So it's a piece of old furniture and it's kind of, you know, I like to restore things that are old if they're in good shape, but you know, it's kind of beaten up or whatever. And it's one of those ones that kind of has the bumps on the front and the glass and, you know, you open the door and it's got glass shelves. You've probably seen them before, you know, the kind of turned feet, whatever. And I did a thing where I painted it like bright, smarty blue. And then I do Mod Podge on the back of the the backing of it like really bright floral fabric and it's like wildly bright and blue and wild colors and that's the kind of art I like. I like things that are interesting and different and bright and things that make me feel happy. That's what I gravitate towards but I also I like art that makes me think too but you know as far as artists go I don't know like Van Gogh a little bit but you know, a little weird sometimes too. I love the irises, but then there's other pieces that I'm not that crazy about. I love, uh, I was looking at one the other day and I can't remember. I don't really pay attention to details, like as far as names and stuff go. Yeah. Just anything that pulls you in? Yeah, that anything that pulls me in, I'm very interested in. Well, I just want to say that I know you're not perfect, but I'm so grateful to have had you on. I think, oh, thank you. I think that you've been through so much. You've faced adversity. You took this point in time where you were losing important people in your life, and then you got involved in the very place that helps people process that. Now you're leading that. Mm. You're involved in I'm our... I'm lucky. Yes. And we're so lucky to have people who approach things that way because we miss out on opportunities when we're going through something tough and we don't face it. We miss out on that opportunity to grow and contribute to the community and so I just want to thank you for all your years of service and you're, you're an incredibly strong person. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs>